Welcome to the Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jen Sipchakchai Banker, and I'm here with a couple of bureau agents. Are they detectives? Are they Pinkertons? We don't know. First, he won't ask any questions if you want to borrow his car. It's P.T. McNiff. How's it going, P.T.? It's so simple. The front is the front. The back is the back. Uh, it's going well, Jen. How are you? I'm doing great, uh, especially now that you reminded me of that hilarious exchange. Uh, <laughs> and you can call him King, just like you did when you were a child. It's Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? I don't know what you just said, but it must mean handsome devil. I'm good, Jen. How are you? <laughs> uh, great. Great. So ready for this. We are here today to, to review Martin Scorsese's true crime drama, Killers of the Flower Moon, which just hit theaters this past weekend. The film adapts a 2017 book of the same name by David Grin, and it tells the story of a series of murders committed in the Osage Nation in the 1920s. It's a co-production between Paramount and Apple. So after its theatrical run, we're assuming it's going to end up on Apple TV+. If you are listening to us for the first time, we'll have a spoiler-free section designed for those who have not yet seen the film. And then, with a very clear warning, we'll shift into spoiler mode for the rest of the show. So if you haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon yet, but you haven't decided whether or not you want to make a trip out to the theater, we're here for you to sort of recommend whether or not you would want to go do that. PT, what can listeners do if they've stumbled upon this podcast and don't want to miss all the great reviews we've got coming up? Well, Jen, uh, if they don't want to miss new episodes when they drop, please uh, follow the Long Take Review wherever you get your podcasts. We host the feed on Jen's Substack, uh, thelongtake.substack.com. But you can also follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, any any uh, place where you get your podcasts served to you. Uh, and you can also check up on us on our Instagram and Threads accounts at the Long Take Review. Thanks, PT. So we are just about ready to get into Killers of the Flower Moon. But first, we want to do a quick movie news update. So we've had a few updates on the strike. Uh, the latest story, uh, I guess it's not the latest, but whenever I made this outline, what the latest story was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was um, that there was a group of the some of the highest paid actors, I think George Clooney and Emma Stone were the, the most commonly named, and they basically tried to reopen negotiations with the MPTP uh, by offering up basically their own money to sort of like make up for some of the, right? Like, but it, it was it was specifically through union dues. They were going to say, we'll eliminate the cap on union dues. So we'll pay more union dues to basically pay for some of make basically make it so that the financial blow is a little less. Um, am I getting that right? I believe so. That sounds right. And it's one of those things that sounds on the surface like a good idea. But I understand why uh, SAG after it was just like, shut up guys. Like we're trying to negotiate with them. <laughs> like we, we like, let's maybe consider doing something like that internally where, mm. you know, the people who have a lot, the top sort of 1% of the, of the earners could spread the money around to other people within the union, but to, you know, try to share that money with the billionaire companies feels, uh, you know, feels a little bit like 
it's it's just misplacing the generosity and it's just like no have the, we we let's still be unified and it sounds like it got shot down pretty quickly uh and it doesn't sound like there were any hard feelings about it um but it was it was it, it got a news cycle or two uh for i think like a day and a half so at least it got things kind of back talking about negotiations which i don't know maybe that's a benefit um, and that's the only other part of the strike news is they haven't been talking for two weeks and they are going to start talking, uh, on, uh, this week again, as we are recording this, it's tomorrow morning, Tuesday, October 24th, they're going to talk again. There were promises that some of the big CEOs were actually going to be in the room. So, you know, I think we're all in a kind of dang space right now because we were almost there. It felt like right after the writer's strike, this could be wrapped up. They'd use it as a model. And so when those negotiations fell apart again, I think a lot of us were kind of uh, bummed out. But hopefully this means they're reopening it. They can figure this out. And then if the actors don't get quite what they want, George Clooney can give them some of that uh, tequila money and we'll get there. I I kept wondering whether or not this was a like strategic move by these high paid actors, right, to be like, well, let's make this absurdly generous offer that's not actually helpful for the negotiations, but continues to make the AMPTP look bad, right? That the nego- that their offers are so terrible that's, that George Clooney has to offer open his own wallet to fix this problem, <laughs> right? Um, so that was the only way. But otherwise, yeah, I, I agree with PT that people were not okay with this. They were just like, that's very nice, but not helpful. Not helpful, guys. Uh, so, so yeah, but, you know, hopefully at least just from the press like attracting attention to it helped maybe push negotiations back open who knows but there's some even more kind of surprising news i don't know does someone else want to, i can't say it mm-hmm. uh, i'll say that the the next mission impossible movie dead reckoning part two has officially been pushed back a year uh so it's not coming out until 2025 i don't know if they pinned a date on it yet uh but uh, but it's coming. It, it was had been scheduled for this for next summer. Uh, There's still, I think I I forget what percentage of filming to do. But they've only filmed part of it f- before the first one came out, and they haven't been able to work on it. So they want to make sure they have enough time. Uh, so you know, that's that's at least another year till we get the next Mission Impossible. Bake in times for Tom Cruise injuries and uh, any any sort of stunt disasters. That might unfold, so uh, who knows how long it will be. Um, in in less disturbing news, apparently there's a Quiet Place prequel that also got pushed that is buried in the sub-subhead of the article. Mm. Uh, I will take this opportunity to officially disagree with PT as I fill, fill in my follow-up because you have not read the article. You are giving misinformation. The next oh, Mission Impossible film has been pushed back a year it is no longer titled Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning <gasps> Part 2. What? It is filmed to be titled later. Uh, <laughs> they have taken off the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2 title. Now, to me, uh, this is absurd. And what it means is when they looked at the kind of postmortem on Dead Reckoning Part 1, they didn't say, oops, we shouldn't have released this a week before Barbenheimer. They said, the title confused people. So now we'll just rename it to something else. And, um, you know, I think we will eventually probably have a uh, live, die, repeat slash edge of tomorrow situation where Dead Reckoning 
part one is suddenly in iTunes folders as just dead reckoning um, without mm-hmm. ever the part one. But I mean, I think that's a stupid lesson to take from this and just a very, very silly thing that we all put up with this giant long punctuation soup title and now it's just all going away so unbelievable <laughs> now now i want them to keep it so it has big uh john wick chapter three parabellum energy and none of the other ones <laughs> that have a, a have that naming scheme a subtitle yeah. yeah a subtitle beyond the chapter why not just keep it have it be part I mean, one tom cruise is just promising a part two sometime down the road uh he'll be 90 <laughs> and they'll finally do part two well uh. so this feels to me like they feel that they are worried that the film, when it actually does come out eventually will be so far out from part one that people mm. won't either won't remember that there was a part one and be like, wait, what, what, what was part one or that they're going to be, I'm not going to bother seeing that. I don't need to go see another movie to see this. You know what I mean? Like, like they don't, they want, don't want to squeeze people out just based on, Oh, I haven't seen part one. So I don't care about part two. They want to just like re- hard reset. So it's just people trick people into thinking it's a whole new movie. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, and then the very tiny silver lining, and I'm stealing directly from AV Club that said, buried in this is one small bit of good news for Mission Impossible fans, is the new date is May 23rd, and they have already locked in the premium screens for three weeks exclusively. So nice. they won't get squeezed out. I think maybe that's recognizing that Paramount did a really silly thing and should have just moved it earlier or later i mean we we were in those doldrums of august if it had come out like two three weeks after barbie it would have like soared but i it just got lost in the mix um i think it's done pretty well on streaming uh part one but um it was just kind of lost in the shuffle so uh as probably the most weirdly devoted to this franchise of the three of us i'll just say i'll wait i'll give it time uh, I think Chris McQuarrie has, to my knowledge, put out at least 16 hours of podcast about part one. I got I got stuff to do. I'll listen to that and we'll get to 2025 eventually. <laughs> Amazing. Any other movie news before we move on? Uh, the only other strike news I've been seeing coming up on my feed is that the uh, SAG-AFTRA recommended that uh, any members not dress up uh, for uh, as a character under a struck company for Halloween, devastating Los Angeles costume parties for uh, <laughs> the next the next few weeks. Uh, and uh, you know, my my favorite reaction to it being uh, Weird Al talking about how because they made a he made a biopic uh, of about him, himself that he can't dress he can't be himself for Halloween, so he has to dress as someone totally different. He can't just hand out candy as a dad. I, I liked Ryan Reynolds saying he was going to yell scab at his kids, uh, <laughs> which I think finally got SAG after to be like, okay, maybe we need to clarify that there's some silliness here. And so on. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah that's funny. Um, maybe. Well, I mean, the kids actually technically wouldn't be members, right? So that was the clarification they put out is that they were encouraging <laughs> nobody to dress like struck characters, but then said, Children are allowed. Oh. It's just the the, uh, the actors' members. So just okay. well, and I think it was Ryan Reynolds and Weird Al and many others making jokes that finally got them to be like, "Yeah, we're being pretty silly here." So sure, we are now ready to start talking about Killers of the Flower Moon. We're going to start with our short take. So, what was just your general spoiler-free reaction to this three and a half hour epic? 
I will just say uh, it is epic. Uh, I think you feel the length in the theater, or maybe I will say I felt the length in the theater, uh, but it was totally worth going to see. Um, I think this is um, one of our great filmmakers in this, uh, you know, culture, giving us a very late stage masterpiece. He says he's got one more movie in him and then he'll be done. So um, it does feel like we should treasure this while it's there. It's a really good time. It's got amazing performances. Um, if you love movies, this is a movie you should go out and support. So I'll, I'll keep it simple at that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I don't know if I felt the length uh, to the degree that Greg did. There were definitely a few times where I was like, we aren't close to this. You know, <laughs> like I, like I I lost track of time. But there were some moments where I was like, oh, we're not even halfway through, are we? Like, you, I could kind of feel myself clocking that in the background, even though, you know, I didn't end up being like, when is this going to be over? Um, but yeah, it, it's it's one of those experiences where I've been so looking forward to this movie now for probably like three years. <laughs> um, they filmed I think, a, a chunk of it before uh, the pandemic and then more of it. They kind of came back and did more. It was almost released last year or, you know, there, there've been, this is the third year that it felt like it was going to come out uh, uh, or at least had you know, rumors to come out. Now it's actually out right outside of the theater. I was a little bit like, well, could anything have lived up to all that like internal hype that I had? Uh, and uh, you know, which wasn't that it was disappointment or a letdown, but uh, if you, the people listening, uh, wanting the short take have not been hyping yourself up for three years, I don't think you'll experience that. Uh, and the more I sit on it, the more I think about it, the more it's just kind of been kicking around my head the last three or four days. Uh, the, it's only it, it only feels better and better. I, it really does feel like it's it's a masterpiece. It's the, sort of the culmination of this last decade of Scorsese putting out a movie every three or four years that's over three hours long uh, and really trying to make grand statements about humanity and particularly American society. I didn't feel the length of this at all. And here's the context for this. So I saw this movie on Friday afternoon. And then Saturday afternoon, I took my mom to go see the Taylor Swift concert film. Which is not as long, but it's about two hours and 45 minutes. So it's it's in the ballpark, right? It's their comparable lengths, <laughs> I would say. And I would say that for Killers of the Flower Moon, I was sort of engrossed the entire time and basically didn't really notice that it was had how much time it passed and when i went into the theater it was daylight and when i left it was dark so only then when i was leaving did i was notice how long how much time it passed whereas when i was in the taylor swift concert film and you know obviously i'm not a taylor swift super fan i definitely respect and appreciate her a lot more now that i've seen this amazing high production quality she's a performer with a capital P concert film, but it is literally just the recording of the concert. It's not cut together with anything else. So it's not really like a documentary at all or behind the scenes thing. So like, there's no bonus sort of content. It's literally just as if you're sitting watching. And so right about, I could try to remember what era it was. I think folklore, maybe I really was like, how much more is there? <laughs> like, I think I get it now. Like, um, <laughs> And then, and then some some bits definitely pull me back in. But so I guess that's that's me backdooring my my review of the Taylor Swift concert film by way of talking about this film. But I did not blink for a second. I during Killers of Flower Moon, I was just 
totally engrossed the entire time. I feel like there are a couple of incredibly brilliant choices that Martin Scorsese is making here. I am still wrestling with like with the there's a, a bit of ambiguity in the story, which I'm sure we'll talk about and try to parse out and figure out later, which I'm I don't know how I, I still don't really know how I feel about it. And I'm still also wrestling with the crit- the main criticism of this, that it's, you know, it's doing its best to sort of center the Osage, you know, people and represent them, do right by them and represent mm-hmm. them well. And But the main criticism I heard is that Lily Gladstone's character sort of gets sidelined after a certain point in the movie. And that, you know, if we really were trying to bring in the Osage perspective, like, why did that happen or like why why wasn't there people were just calling for more of her in the film and i you know i hope we talk about whether or not that how fair an assessment that is later but that's the those are kind of those two things i think i'm still kind of like simmering on and and i probably would be resolved if i saw the movie again uh but in general i was just really blown away i think just from a craft perspective this film was absolutely dazzling performances of in it are amazing this is probably the the best that robert de niro has been in a very very long time lily gladstone let's give her i don't i will talk oscars at the very end but i want to give her an oscar (laughs) for this for sure uh and so yeah there was so much about this that really blew me away and i was really happy about but a couple of things where i'm like i just have questions and i'm just not i'm not settled yet i think uh but in terms of telling telling a story of these atrocities that were committed against the osage people i feel like it's it's gripping i was a little skeptical i think when i first heard about the premise of the film i'm like oh how is martin scorsese gonna sort of tell the story because i don't really associate him with historical narratives uh or you know like other than gangster films (laughs) like like as as much as those can be historical but um i really thought from that perspective he did an excellent job and that wasn't that short age of innocence and silence erasure from (laughs) from jen yeah but like but yeah, okay, and gangs in New York, all, right? Yeah, and gangs in New York. Yeah, but, but that's like, also yeah. a gangster. That's first of all. That's true. A handful of movies in a like fifty movie, whatever it is, four, 30 or forty movie career right. shows that it's an exception and not a rule. Right. Maybe I should have said western. This is his first western. Mm. Sure. So that's I think fine. it works better if you say that. Probably. Well, I think we're we're ready to move into the recommendation algorithm in which we establish the audience of a film. So this segment acknowledges that not every film is for everyone. So who do we think should go see this film? Like, who are we recommending it to? People with strong Uh, bladders. (laughs) I, I managed to do it. I skipped, I skipped uh, the drink. I, and I had some salty French fries beforehand to just really dehydrate me and make me unhealthy and woozy. Uh, 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 look, I I'm gonna play the kind of cheesy lame card. I think it's important that every American go see this. This is a important piece of our history that was wiped out, and the book and now the film do an important job of making us atone with the past, where we're like, you know, eh, we we don't have to pay for the sins of our forefathers. And Martin Scorsese has said as he was preparing this film, he's reminding everybody like. I went and talked to the children of the people depicted. This is not long, long ago. This is the 20s. A lot of these people who survived these events are still alive and had families. So I could talk to those kids. And so like, I went and did that. And 
you know, I think this country just has a terrible habit of pretending these horrible things didn't happen or that we don't owe something to the memory of them. We can just erase them. And, you know, um, I will save it for our spinoff political show, but this is what happens when you ban books and you change uh, history uh, courses is these stories get lost. And hey, it doesn't mean you're a bad person just because you're the same race of the people who did these atrocities, but it means you need to think about what it's like to be a person who's not white in this country. So um, I think it's really important. That's who I would say to get it. Um, And I don't know, people who like Leo DiCaprio with fake teeth. Those are the two and whatever Venn diagram exists between those two. (laughs) So Canadians who love Leonardo DiCaprio and all Americans. Yep. Why are you bringing Canadians into this? Well, because he said everyone, he said it's all Americans and then people who love Leonardo DiCaprio. So yeah, people from other countries who like Leo with weird teeth and then all Americans. I don't know. Yeah. Um, There's yeah people from like, Thailand, who like Leonardo DiCaprio with fake teeth. Also, it didn't have to be Canadians. Uh, yeah, I mean, I co-sign everything that that Greg says. Uh, I, I, it's more, it's really more. I'm thinking about like, well, who shouldn't see it? And uh, you know, that's that's hard to uh, come up with. There, you know, there are acts of violence depicted in the movie, and there's some, uh, you know, the unflinching portrayals of that, uh, which I'm sure there are some people who already know, they already have their opinions maybe formed about what they expect from the trailers that you know, there's, there's, there are murders that happen uh, in this and that, you know, maybe that's something that is too squishy for them. I believe there is uh, to uh, follow a, a recent trend. There's a, an animal endangerment aftermath um that does happen uh which is just something maybe people should be uh, aware of a household animal um and uh so there's there's those elements but yeah really i think it it, the story is really important people should be going and seeing it uh and you know this is my uh opinion i think there's a lot of people who they know this is co-produced by apple it's going to be on their streaming surface. I don't know how many people have the Apple streaming service when Ted Lasso is not airing, but uh, there's, uh, you know, there's, so there, but it could be like, well, I could just watch this at home. I, I'll just say when Martin Scorsese's last movie, The Irishman, was a Netflix movie and that aired in very few theaters, uh, but one of them was here in LA. I went to see it at the Egyptian and I was absolutely engrossed seeing it on a big screen. I, I loved that movie. I thought it was great. And almost everyone I know who watched it like as a little mini series at home, because that was also like over well over three hours long, uh, they were like this dragged. I couldn't pay attention. I just wasn't able to really follow along. I don't think that would similarly happen with this movie just because of some of the elements of the story. And it's not all old people de-aged, uh, which it was part <laughs> of the thing with the Irishman. But uh, I do think going and seeing a big sweeping movie like this with the kind of uh, uh, you know, directing work that Martin Scorsese does, uh, and the kind of cinematography done by Rodrigo uh, Prieto, uh, whose name I obviously just had to look up. Um, that, like, you know, the, the the visuals hit so well on a big screen, even though it is a time commitment, even though it does seem like you, it's it's like a marathon to go and be there for three hours and twenty six minutes plus previews and commercials and all that beforehand. Uh, I think it's really worth it. I think it's worth trying to go see in the theater if at all possible for uh, if people can fit that into their lives. 
that's what they should do instead of waiting a month and watching it at home, probably in bits and pieces, probably distracted by other things, not having some of those quieter scenes, uh, character interactions just engross you, which I think can happen in the cinema. I also say that this film compared to the Irishman has, it comes to a boil, right? In a way that I think the Irishman does it. Like there's a, just a, constant tension that's building and building and building that I feel like if you were watching at home though I agree that I think it would be much more of a transcendent experience and sort of a change like it would change you more as you're walking out of a theater because you've been sort of held hostage (laughs) watching it for that amount of time versus at home when you can kind of like turn it off and walk away and come back and and sort of like take respites emotional respites (laughs) from it I think that's a big part of viewing something like this the other thing I'll say, too, about Greg's comment about everybody, every American should see this or how important it is for so many people to see this movie. I'll also say that it, at no point does it feel like it's lecturing at me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, so so I feel like that's that's sort of if you are rejecting this movie all re- at just at face value, I would say keep in mind that it's directed by Martin Scorsese and that because of that, it's going to have sort of all that violent the violence and the action and the you know the the gripping storytelling that we associate with his movies and that's not to say it's it's like glamorizing it at all that's not what i mean but it's sort of like you know what i mean like it's 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 told in a way that is gonna engage you and and you're not gonna while the at the by the end you're gonna be like wow this did such a great job of depicting sort of white supremacy and how you know people being complicit and that racism is an institute like is institutional and like all this sort of stuff like there's all this sort of stuff that you can take away from it but it's when you're watching it you're not going to feel like oh like i know martin scorsese like thanks like i i knew that white people were bad right you know what i mean like and so, (laughs) so um so i don't know if that you know i don't know if anyone for whom that plea works is for is actually listening to this right now but you know i figured i figured it it needs to be said because i think my thing that i was sort of debating and i put this in our, in our google docs sort of the second point is that there's going to be a debate about whether or not the history channel dads and i'm stealing that from an episode of mike mike and oscar i was listening to where they sort of were debating like the history channel dads are going to come out for napoleon but they're not going to come out for this movie i think maybe is what they were discussing mm. and um and so because it is sort of like interrogating american history as opposed to just being like isn't it grand that like these crazy wars happened or something you know like in a way that napoleon might you know that's no knock on ridley scott but i think there's just the historical material might be lend itself to different types of stories right so i don't know that's a really long way of saying like are people going to not watch this when they should as greg's saying but and is it is it how much is it going to appeal to that sort of like history channel dad (laughs) stereotype Along with that, I will just note that is exactly who the book is targeted at. And um, when you pick up the book, the subtitle is, you know, the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. Like the the foundation and formation of the FBI is a core part of that story. And they cut that material way back for the film. I know we're still being spoiler free, so I won't say any more than that. But um, it is interesting to me that you know you might get a history channel dad who's like oh i loved that story about the founding of the fbi and yeah we get sheriff landry jesse plemons is showing up but it's not like a core part of the the story the way the book is so um but that 
is a good and helpful correction to the book, right? So these complaints that the the movie doesn't do enough for the Osage, I think, um, you know, it is doing much more work than the book did. And I think actually David Grant, the author, would say he attempted it but didn't do enough. And so he got the, the movie does a better job of it. I, is my read on the relationship. So, so I think that's there. Um, it's a really interesting, uh, sociological study on the history channel dad that they want to go see Napoleon do smart things with cannons, but not necessarily their own history, but that feels dead on. I, I can't say that's wrong. Uh, so everybody's homework is to take their history channel dad over Thanksgiving break and, and take him to go see this. Uh, he'll like it better than when you dragged him to Barbie. Well, Greg, what you don't understand is that Napoleon, he's built different. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what I, I think a lot of people don't realize. Whereas, you know, I don't, I don't know if anyone from killers of the flower moon is built different. They're built just like <laughs> all of us. And that's the problem. Mm. Can you oh. drop in the the more you know star sound just on that? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, all I have is this <laughs> leftover from a guy of a fall. Um, so <laughs> um, okay, so uh, yeah, so I think I think we made a good case for why people who even think they sh- wouldn't want to go see this should go see it and should go see it in the theater. We'd, we'd settle for them watching it at home, I assume, though, right? Like, if it's between that and yeah. nothing. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I, I, think, I think there's a reason why Martin Scorsese, in his, it is, again, the last decade or so of his work, is making movies that are the same length as, like, a Netflix miniseries, but is not letting them be presented as miniseries. Mm. Because yeah. it's like, this is a whole uh, complete experience that should be, you know, watched in a theater uh, with undivided attention. And I agree because as I was watching it, I was sort of trying to think if this were a miniseries, where would it break? And I could not come up with anything. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. I was just like, I guess there, but that would be weird. Like, there's no logical pause. It just keeps going. Okay. I think we're ready for spoiler mode. You know, Greg almost went there already. So if you have not seen Killers of the Flower Moon, hopefully our endorsement of it will send you to the theater. Come back once you've seen it and join us for the rest of the conversation. Okay, so at the in my short take, I mentioned there's some ambiguities in the film, and this is really one I want to start with, just because my own personal curiosity, I'm burning to hear your thoughts on this. But how dumb is Ernest Burkhart? Because and what I mean by that is, and you know, this is very interesting. A lot of the the reviews have sort of commented in some way on Leonardo DiCaprio playing against type like that this is sort of the first time he's played someone a character that is really dim-witted and sort of unattractive in a way that like you know like this it goes against his sort of suave movie star like it's the opposite of his character in Wolf of Wall Street who is also despicable right but but at least was like nominally charming and, and so I and, and for me the ambiguity I was referring to really comes down to this question of like how much are we supposed to think that he is a way fully aware of and still doing it anyway versus because because a lot of the story is him being manipulated by Robert De Niro's character and so like I just couldn't I couldn't settle on a dividing line between like what when where does Ernest Burkhart's ignorance end and his culpability begin do you know what I mean hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, my my pithy response when uh, we we uh, broke content production rules and we're talking about this over text was uh, was that he's uh, way less dumb than everyone around him thinks he is, but he's way dumber than he thinks he is uh, because he like is, is sort of underestimated um, and he's not that like, and I think especially his wife sort of thinks that like he isn't, you know, he's, he's more pure uh, and, and stupid uh, in his purity uh, or pure in his stupidity maybe than, uh, than some of the other people she's afraid of. Whereas, like he thinks he's kind of being a mastermind about this. His culpability is clear. I mean, he's directly just ordering murders. Like he is just like very dumbly again, as like, like a, a dim person just being like, I need you to blow up my sister-in-law's house. <laughs> like just to like people he's just met. Uh, and you know, the unfortunate thing is because of the time and because of the social context, like it works for a long stretch of time. Everything's just going great for him. Uh, the one thing, and I think this is probably where you're coming from, is, you know, how, like, how, I, I guess it's less that he's dumb and more that he's sometimes self-deluded. That's how I took it, that he was able to lie to himself that when he was causing all of this pain and all this suffering to everyone else in the Osage community around his wife, he didn't think that he was actually, like, hurting her, like, uh, you know, that like he was able to sort of be like, well, like I'm doing this because like, you know, I, I, I'm not even saying that he doesn't realize he's poisoning her, but I don't know if he feels like I'm hurting her. I'm helping her because we're consolidating the head rights into our family. And I think that he does when he has the opportunity to sort of be like, I don't care about her. I can't wait till she's dead. He never says that. And he never kind of goes there. So I think that, you know, it's part of the sort of complicated truth and reality of the history of white Americans thinking like I'm this benevolent person who's doing something good that will help the, you know, for the greater good and for the greater society, including this non-white person that I really care about and love. And that's murdering everybody in their family and debilitating her until she can barely function. Like, aren't, aren't I actually like, where, where's my statue? Like, where's my parade? Why don't, why isn't there a holiday named after me? Hmm. That was a long way to say he's a Ken, not an Allen, right? Uh, I think uh, to go back to our, our Barbie conversation. Um, uh, I I mean, I just had so much spark in me that I could rant for 10 minutes. So I'm going to avoid that temptation and just say, I think this is an absolutely brilliant character for exactly this question, right? Like I think uh, Scorsese really wants us to kind of revel in that ambiguity and to think about what that ambiguity means. Are we culpable in stories like this because of the fact that we are um, willfully ignorant, as PT said, right? Um, when it comes to the actual poisoning, the refrain Ernest gives is like, well, this will just calm her, right? And King's like, yes, yes, it'll calm her. Don't worry, it's going to help her it becomes immediately clear that it's causing more problems than it's solving. But he just allows himself to say, nope, the trusted authority figure, the guy I want to be, the my uncle, my protector, he's telling me this is helping. So I'm just going to go with it and I'm going to keep it all in the family and I'm going to do all that. Um, why I think this is brilliant is kind of twofold. And it um, 
it's implied in the movie, but it is a much bigger part of the book that um, the majority of the Osage are um, deemed incompetent by the society around them. So in order to spend their money, they are uh, given guardians, which are always kind of the rich, white, powerful men. I believe it's a banker in the film. And the banker get has to be the one to sign off. And there's this great scene in the beginning where Lily Gladstone, again, just incredible, is in a scene with one of the bankers. And the banker's asking questions like, your mom bought $300 worth of meat? Uh, and when I heard Scorsese talk about the scene, he was like, who cares? None of your business. She wants that meat. Never mind. Uh, and I was like, yeah. Yes, get it, King. Uh, so uh, the most Italian thing that, that uh, Martin Scorsese's ever seen. <laughs> yes. Um, so why I love this is because if you look at the structure of the film, there is an incompetent. There is somebody who is not capable of making the actions make oh. sense of of making up his own mind, and it's the one who gets handed all the power by every one around him, including at times um, Lily Gladstone's character, um, uh, but not always, right? She maintains a lot of power and and, and it's really nice. But um, so I thought this was like the perfect way to show the kind of old, like whatever we project on them is actually what's true about us, right? And then the second fold of it, and this is where I'm going to stretch and maybe I'll go into the spinoff political podcast this character is a stand-in for modern masculinity, right? We have a huge generation of 20-year-olds. Yes, he's played by like a 45-year-old in this film, but he's supposed to be like 20, who are listless, right? They have been told they're supposed to be a certain kind of man and they are not going to be that kind of man because oops now that kind of man is not acceptable anymore which is a great thing but they don't know what they're supposed to be and i think you probably encountered this generation the way i encountered this generation sometimes in the classroom and it's it's not 100 but it's really this lost group who don't know what they're supposed to be and so in a burkhart we have a kind of uh he just arrives back from World War One, and he's references trauma that others experience, not his own trauma, kind of implying like, yeah, I'm I'm fine. I was stronger than that. But probably also he was not stronger than that and has some trauma. And he just has no future and is so easily manipulated. And to me, that makes King youtubers and fundamentalist you know dangerous religious figures in other parts of the world and in our parts of the world right like it's this kind of corrupting presence that takes these listless young men and convinces them that the right purpose is protect your family it's okay if it's a little bit of murder, right? Get lots of money. It's okay if people die, <laughs> right? And, yeah, well, right. Just light murder. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And so it just to me is like this perfect encapsulation of, of a kind of figure we need. And, and everything I just said, it's true to history. It's not like Scorsese invented any of this. He just presents it in a way where you're like, I know this guy. I've met this guy. I've seen this guy's comments on the internet. I've seen his anti-Last Jedi tweets, right? He's struggling. Uh, and since we don't have a real way to deal with mental health and emotion and all the rest in this country, we end up with darkness and corruption. So an absolutely brilliant character. And I, you know, I, I think it is very clear that he was poisoning and he eventually admits to it. Um, Scorsese says the key to unlocking the movie for him was the fact that they were so deeply in love. And I think it is really hard to justify or to not justify, excuse me, to reconcile his deep, deep love for his wife 
and the fact that he would do all this. But in his mind, they are the same thing. That's how much he loves his wife. And uh, I think that's a sick and twisted mind we we see around. Hey, speaking of critiques of modern masculinity, Jen, what do you have to say about the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's because there's no pressure there or anything. Um, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I, re- I really like your I really like your your reading of that. And that helps me kind of be more comfortable because I think my knee jerk reaction to the ambiguity was not frustration, but just sort of like, I don't know what the movie wants me to think. And I'm like, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. And, but I really like the idea that, and I have read a couple of um, interviews and just like critics sort of referencing interviews, establishing that sort of what you just said of that Scorsese was like, both of these things can be true, right? Like that he can, he can actually love her. His love for her can be real. And yet he can do all these terrible things that, that directly affect her. And that was the thing I didn't understand in the movie. I was just like, how did he not think that murdering her sisters was not going to upset her? Like, I don't, mm. <laughs> like, you know I mean? like, but I guess maybe, maybe he was so arrogant to think that she would never know that that was what mm. justified it, I guess. I don't know. And, so this is this is the sidebar question that's more just like a kind of clarification. But do you feel like the insulin was poisoned from the start? Yeah. Oh, you mean even before head. he was putting the additive in? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that it might have been. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm going to say no. I think it may have more been that they hadn't really figured out the right formula for insulin. And so it was making her like a little bit off. And so then they just kind of leaned into it. Uh, but I'm basing that on nothing. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it came in poisoned. Uh, and I also wouldn't be surprised if this whole, the whole story of there's only five people in the world who are testing it was, was also not true. Uh, and was just something that, uh, King, King Hale told Ernest to make him feel big. Uh, so he could be, he could, you know, kind of show off and be big time to, uh, to Molly. Right. Cause he does persuade him to do it. Cause he, because he's like, this is how you take care of your wife, right? Like he's like, mm-hmm. this is how, like you have to, and that, and you see the fruits of that messaging when, right? Because Molly initially sends the doctors away at some point, and she uh, kind of doesn't. She she expresses reservations about taking the insulin. This is before we actually see the additive that he pours in, right? It's just the right, supposedly the regular insulin. But I feel like his argument to her is so fierce. Like I love you so much. I, I want and I want what's best for you. And it's so convincing in a very sinister, creepy way. Right. Because and at that point, I feel like he didn't actually he was taking what was being given to him at face value. Right. And being like, yes, this is medicine. This will help her. I have to give this to her. Right. And at that point, he hadn't it hadn't clicked that like, oh, maybe I'm hurting her <laughs> by giving it to her. Mm. Um so and that's just it's just so sad because like so I think yes the that's the thing I kind of go back and forth with this movie is that like in some moments it feels like he's ju- he has just been taken in and he's just a pawn in in King's massive conspiracy against the Osage, but then there are other points where you're like no you have to know you have to know. and <laughs> and I feel like his, his him drinking the poison towards the end. Like he pours a little bit in his whiskey glass and then throws it back. I feel like that has to be some sort of self-loathing admission, right? Mm. Where he's like, 
I know that I can see this is probably hurting. It's either him testing it or being like, I know I'm hurting here, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. And so I'm going to hurt myself too, because I can't, I can't face, I can't be brave enough to, to stop doing this basically. It's in, uh, so it is a weird moment because I, I read it in the theater as like, he's testing to see if this is going to make him sick. And then that's when he kind of starts doing some kind of conscious acts. And you're like, is the film turning this into like a truth serum type of idea? Like not literally, but like, uh, like, Oh, I'm, I'm now going to turn good. Cause I've realized what I've done. And it all kind of falls apart in this kind of back and forth that happens in the last 45 minutes or so. Um, or maybe three hours. I forget how long, uh, that, that section is. Um, so, uh, I read it as the doctors are perhaps like the most purely evil, people outside of king right and they make a special note about how the doctors got off the hook at the end um and didn't really pay any kind of penalty for for what they've done so my impression was they were they were um when when she kicks them out and they're so upset about being kicked out and they're like you have to pay us and we came all this way i don't think they would care except king was demanding that they start to poison her and then when that's when he has to convince Ernest to mix in the the tincture of whatever to 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 do it. So that's how I read it. I do not remember the history. I mean, I I really don't want to be the in the book guy, but the book is just so much the historical record because it's a work more of journalism and then it is any kind of novel that it you know um, is is often helpful for clarifying those events. But I don't think that was specified. So I imagine they don't know um, mm. within the historical context, right? Because that's like, right. how would you know what he exactly yeah. was telling himself? Right, and I feel like the film does such a good job of showing that the reason this did work so long, even though the sort of at the henchman level, it was so sloppy, is because all of these authoritative figures, all these institutions that people are supposed to implicitly trust, doctors, I mean, less so now, but bankers, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, fight, like the everywhere in the town where you are supposed to trust these people doing the sheriff, right? Like everything is corrupt. Uh, that real, like, and, but people operate on the assumption that they're not corrupt. And I feel like that's how they were able to get away with it for so long. And I feel like the film does such a good job of showing. That's why I was like, it got to the point where I was like, these doctors, and you see when, when, White uh, Jesse Plemons' character is interviewing them and he's asking them about like why did you hack up this body into small pieces? And they're like, Well, we're just mm. we're just looking for the bullet. Like and they and it, it's so thin. Their reasoning is so thin, but they're just doubling down on it where they're like, Yeah, of course, like we had to like scrape the skull off this person because we were trying to find the bullet for you. And like and so that's why I was like, anyone who's sick in this movie, because I think at least one or two of the sisters also seem to have the same and maybe mm-hmm. the mom has the, the same mom, sort yeah. of waste, the wasting yeah. sickness. And I'm like that. Ha- I got to the point where I was like, there's nothing to confirm this in the movie. But based on the way that they presented the doctors, I assumed that they the doctors were sort of poisoning everybody. You know, what I mean, like that it was like this massive to and to, to make them because there's some some sorry, I'm getting really worked up about this. There's some, <laughs> there's a line that he, that King has where he's like. You know, these people are just cursed, like they're going to waste away. They're sick. They're cur- mm. like he sort of blames genetics like they're 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 doomed. They're going to die out anyway. Look at them. They're all sickly. They have all these diseases and health problems. Right. So it's OK. Like he uses it as a justification 
It's like, okay, they're going to die anyway. We might as well just murder them now. <laughs> kind of. Mm. <laughs> like, I mean, um, I, I took that even further. I took that as part of his cover story it was like, oh, I mean, you know, and that, like he didn't think that they were a sickly people who are wasting away. He was trying to convince Ernest to think that so that he wouldn't ask questions when people would keep dying. But that's just all. Like, yeah. I mean, I think part of the, the, you know, Greg talked uh, about sort of the brilliance of the DiCaprio character. I think that's part of the brilliance of the De Niro character where like, there's never a turn with him. Like, it's never like, Ooh, like, is this guy like secretly evil? It's just like, Nope. He's unapologetically straight up evil the whole time, but just seems super genteel and nice about it. And, you know, presents it all as if he's just a sort of like, man, you know, I love all these people, but like they're children and they don't deserve all the stuff that they have. Like I need to, we need to be here to take care of it. We, the adults, the white men are, are the other real, the real folk who could really do this. And like, really it should be ours anyway. So like, we're just working to get it all back where it should, where it belongs. And everyone understands that. Right. And it's all very like reasonable. And he gets like, like it's just like little flashes of him being frustrated and annoyed uh, or, or, you know, occasionally even angry, but he never like explodes and he never like goes off the rails and there's never like, you know, a mustache twirling reveal where you're surprised at what's happening. And then I, I think that's part of why uh, uh, we were saying this before the recording. Like, I, I'm looking, already looking forward to going and watching it again. Cause I think a lot of those early scenes will be even more devastating. Cause you're like, Oh, right. You know exactly what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And just to add in one of, you know, I agree with you, Jen, that, that scene where uh, uh, Ernest is, you know, earnestly uh, trying to convince his uh, his wife, about like, oh, you know, this is the medicine, and I'll take care of you, blah blah blah. Baked into that, like it, it, like is a little glimpse of how it's all still, you know, sort of a colonizer mindset of just like, and your medicine men haven't uh, done anything to help. Mm. Like all this keeps mm. happening, and it's like, right, it's because they convince these people that their way of dealing with things isn't going to work. You got to go to the modern white person thing and the modern white person medical people are killing you add to that list also alcohol right um the whole stereotype of the drunk native um you know kind of comes out of this moment that's that's a little faulty but you know where we mostly get that i think is 50s westerns which is responding to these kind of early experiences in oklahoma from the 20s that then get fictionalized and so on um there's some sloppy history doing in there i'm passing the history channel dad test, but I'm not like actually being a good historian at the moment. Um, so, uh, but the, you know, there's a, again, the, the movie does such a great job. It's three hours and 20 minutes long. It cannot possibly give you all the details of the vast conspiracy, but it just shows you the little flashes. So you're like, Oh, and that's right. That's another tool they had to keep them down. How can you get somebody to seem incompetent, get them to look drunk in public frequently how do you get them there you convince them it's fun to drink and on and on like it's 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 really insidious um and and terrible um you know in hindsight uh to to be looking at at all this kind of together um to pt's point um i do think that that really is the brilliance of the de niro character is they uh dicaprio has his kind of big arrival they go sit down at a dinner table and he essentially lays it all out right um in a very uh kind of um mob boss or kind of stupid mob boss like i'm not gonna say the crime out loud i know to keep the silent part silent but i'm gonna lay this all out very clearly and while i do think molly and and ernest had kind of real pure love they only fell in love because of king's 
machinations, right? He got them together and sat them together over and over again and then planted the seed in earnest and it just all fell into his plan. So um, I, I also like, this is just a little bit of a tangent, I like the balance of King being such an important societal figure and seeming so benevolent in almost every single scene and him being, um, you know, the mastermind behind this, the most evil figure. We get a little clue. I think at one point it's the sheriff is like, aren't you being a little obvious buddy after the house gets blown up um, and so on. And um, why I like that so much is um, that's the racist we all need to deal with in this country. We've dealt with the guy in the clan hood and we, if the guy's not in the clan hood, then we are like, well, he's not that bad. And my, my tangent part of this is I am like the only person who thought the to kill a mockingbird sequel was really important and really good and what that book's reputation became this is ghost set a watchman which had a problematic publication moment harper lee didn't want it published but they just did it anyway once she couldn't stop them essentially but everybody's reaction to that was like hey atticus finch isn't a racist he's a good guy and the brilliance of that uh sequel book is you take a figure like Atticus Finch and you put him on a citizens council and there's every justification of, well, we don't want that type in town and they become super racist. And I thought that was exactly what King is. And that's exactly the kind of racist we need to examine in this country is the ones who smile while doing the awful things and the kind of common way. I I think I have this right. A character says in the movie, like, oh, I would never shoot a dog, but I, I would shoot an Indian or like I wouldn't be in trouble if I shot an Indian. And it's just like we can't. I think it's a really good thing that we aren't natural naturally in that mindset of like, oh, right. These people hate natives. It's actually like, no, these people do not think they're human. And that we need to recognize when they're making these choices. Yes, they're dunderheaded and stupid and evil. I'm not dismissing any of that, but it's like they are so deeply racist that they just don't understand how these people could have this money. And now we got to take it from them for their own good. They're buying they're buying airplanes. They're buying eight cars a piece like we shouldn't be able to allow that. Um, and yeah, so there's my rant. But I, I do think um, King is really brilliant because he's that type of racist. Yeah, And he's never hiding. Right. Like he's. <laughs> Because and I think that's why it's so crucial, as PT said, that he never has that explosive like someone needles him and then his true nature, quote unquote, comes out. We never get that right. He's true to yeah. himself the entire time, um, even from prison. And this is even the part the I loved it so much. Yeah. He's, <laughs> like, he's in sitting in jail and still from across the hallway trying to talk to Ernest being like, look, 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 like we got to this is how we get this right. Right. Like, we gotta, like, <laughs> The only the only moment where it gets close to something like oh the mask f- fell off, um, which is also the moment when I was like I w- I'm going to want Robert De Niro to win the Academy Award for this. Uh, with spoiler for uh, spoiler within the spoiler uh, section <laughs> for our, our Oscar uh, Oscar watch uh, was when he's having I think dinner with uh, the family and uh, Ernest announces that. Molly's pregnant and the look he gives him when he's just sort of like, what are you doing? Like now we're like, you know, it's a clearly we're going to have to murder a baby now too, because like we (laughs) want her dead within the next eight months. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's insane. And he says like, like he never, he never loses it in a way that anyone else can see, but he has his eyes locked on 
uh, locked on DiCaprio in a way that's just like, it's so good. And it has like these interesting echoes with both De Niro and Pesci and Goodfellas where there are similar moments when someone says something and the attention isn't really on them, but they're just like staring at that person. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you talking about? And like in those movies, in that movie, it's like, Oh, like these people are crazy. And they'll just, they'll, they'll just start jumping up and punching you in the face until you're mush. Uh, but in, in this, it's more like he, it's the closest he comes to like losing that, that genteel, uh, cover which right. and it's because it's the thing he he hasn't controlled it right, right. like it ha- it's not part of his plan uh yeah. is them ha- in them having another baby and so yeah he's like what <laughs> he's so surprised <laughs> um but yeah i i agree that Rob- robert and what's weird is that i feel like the buzz of this film when it premiered did not really harp on robert de niro's performance a whole lot so i wasn't mm-hmm. really expecting it to be as good as it was uh and i don't know if that will change now that more people see the film but um we we somehow i think have only talked about the first question on this list uh, that I made. <laughs> so we probably should move on um and i like, let's tackle the the, uh, the big criticisms about about this film and sort of debate those so i think you know as i mentioned in my short take you know the biggest criticism that i've heard is that you know this this despite attempts of Scorsese and DiCaprio and, and Eric Roth, right. Cause they, there was a whole, which I don't think we've, did we mention, not mention this, this backstory is that they wrote a screenplay that was very close to the book that mostly focused on the Jesse Plemons character and the FBI. And then they did a whole rewrite because they realized, no, like, you know, Ernest uh, Scorsese decided Ernest and Molly are the heart of the story. We need to recenter it on them, uh, and, and and sort of like include more of the Osage Nation in in the in the actual film as as opposed to making it about the FBI. We have to make it about the Osage because they're you know um, they were the victims here. And so uh, the main criticism is, despite all the efforts to do that, that the film still is a story about white men told by white men through the perspective of white men right and that and that there's not enough of the osage actually just today i was almost going to mention it in the movie news check-in i think one of the cast members of reservation dogs had like put the film on blast basically being like why do we keep making movies that glorify violence against indigenous people as opposed to celebrating their culture and stuff like that so yeah it's it's sticky like because obviously it's a that's a valid issue to bring up is like what kinds of movies get told about indigenous peoples and what stories are we telling and who's telling them and all that sort of stuff but but i i'm throwing back i'll throw it back to either of you well this is where i have the five minute not rant but i have a five i i I was thinking about this a lot because i was also really uh engaging this and i saw an interview it looked like it was on the red carpet or or maybe after the premiere from one of the members of the osage tribe who had been consulting on the movie who you know really looked like he was wrestling with the outcome of sort of just like yeah like you know, this is, you know, there's a lot of elements that are in there and like we talked about it uh, and that's really good, but like this still isn't our story. It's someone else's story. And I wish that we were telling our story and, you know, kind of going back and forth. And I can understand that uh, sort of pushback from the uh, the Reservation Road cast member it sounded similar to, you know, w- around uh, when 12 Years a Slave was uh, you know, winning, uh, ultimately winning Best Picture when people were kind of lamenting 
you know, between that and the help, it's like, why are all the stories about black Americans have to be their slaves or their servants, or, you know, they're, they're subjugated in some way, or they're slain civil rights leaders. Um, they're like, why can't there be the other stories, the sort of positive stories that are also, also out there? Um, and, and like, and I, I agree, like, I get all of that. I think that, you know, I, I want there to be, I want there to be another movie. I, want, I mean, this is a bad example, because these are both, this is two movies directed by a white man, but the sort of Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, like, here's two sides of mm. the same conflict like but i'd love uh, an osage director uh and writer to do a version of the, these murders and tell that story or not even the murders but just the the, the land the the culture the, the 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 time around it and what was happening there that would be great i don't know if it necessarily would make sense for martin scorsese and eric roth uh as his co-screenwriter you know, to make this like, let's like do even more. Let's let's be the ones to tell the Osage story. And, you know, there's certainly an argument that it would be great if Apple gave $200 million to an Osage director to tell the story and direct it. You know, I, I don't know if that would happen. And I, I, I don't know this, that this feels very like I'm a white guy who's saying another white guy is doing a great job. But like Martin Scorsese says he's pretty good at like what he's doing. So, you know, it's cool that he spent... Uh, a lot of uh, big companies' money to tell a story that isn't the Osage story, but is the story that is like sort of, hello, like I'm a white man and I would like to talk about how evil these other white men were. And all the things that we've been saying up to this and all the stuff that you know Greg was talking about and how it's so important and the ways in which this sort of insidious nature of the, the prejudice and the discrimination and the just... Uh, uh, you know, just refusal to acknowledge the humanity of these people is so important and is so hidden and not talked about that having a white American tell that story of white Americans about the, and those crimes is also important. And I, I get that it's kind of like, you know, are we sure this isn't just a John Wayne movie where there's a bunch of white people killing a bunch of Indians and ha ha ha, like, don't we all enjoy ourselves in the, in the theater? But like, it, it does not hit like that. Like it is definitely like a, scathing indictment of uh racism and colonialism and uh and the sort of you know uh original sins of american life uh which which will bring me back to my next rant the next time around i feel like the <laughs> the scene specifically that i felt that the most or the like the sort of peak of that was when they pull Ern Ernest. he's already flipped on them and they pull him into the, that nice parlor room. And it's like, it's a very crowded room. It's a lot mm. of people, including Brendan Fraser as King's lawyer, which I did not know he was in this movie. And I was very confused. And and the way that that shot and blocked where Ernst, Ernest is sitting in the front and there's just like this tableau of rich old white people staring at him. And they're all like, you're not going to ruin this for us, right? Like, you're going to you're going to play ball and be good, right? Like, you're going to you're not <laughs> like and they're like and they're they're basically like it's it's king with backup, right? Because it's like and mm. so that to me really reinforced the idea that the the that the main point of this movie and the appeal that Martin Scorsese the appeal that this story had for him when he came across it and thought about making a movie about it. And obviously, I'm I'm just speculating. I'm not speaking for him. Is that he's like, oh, this is this is like he recognized stories that he had told before in this in this story. You know, what I mean, he's like, oh, I can like 
this is a somewhat organized crime syndicate of of white people conspiring against indigenous people like i i can i'm very comfortable telling that story right that fits right in with my filmography and so i yeah like i i think it made a lot of sense and i think the way that he executed it was really well and i agree i agree with the, the idea that like i don't know if i would have wanted him to try to tell the other version that people are hoping for because i think that probably would have been would have been inevitably much worse and more problematic from a representational perspective um but yeah i don't know greg what do you think you know, I think uh, I just want to give the necessary caveat that the real lived experience of Native people should be respected over what uh, we have to say on our podcast about their experience. So I, I I think it's important you raise those objections, and I don't want to belittle or demean that perspective at all. And 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 certainly, I do think there is a problem with the fact that only white people, usually white dudes are empowered to tell stories in our culture. And I think given that unfair power dynamic, Scorsese did the best he could to do so with respect and by bringing in as many collaborators as possible. Um, you know, um, I know uh, you had mentioned David Chen, a great critic who really brought out this argument is like, I love this movie, but this is a problematic piece of it he had brought up how uh in the creator which we talked about it's got this really weird re recasting of the vietnam war with no kind of south asian people being involved in the creation at all and that's a problem or, there were some actors obviously but no like writers no no uh, so on and so i think martin scorsese deserves a lot of credit that he's saw something in this project and wanted to do it but he wanted to do it right and and again um when i have been referencing Scorsese said this, Scorsese said that. I am uh, mainly alluding to, uh, he did the Directors Guild of America podcast, which um, if people don't listen to, it's just, there's a screening of the movie somewhere in LA for members of the Directors Guild. And then the director comes out and is interviewed by another super cool director. And I think this was Ty West inter interviewing uh, Scorsese. And so all of my information about like the making of the film primarily comes from that um, interview where he, where he talked through a lot of this. And it is exactly what you say. DiCaprio was going to play white and was going to be this was going to be the, a cop movie and the book is structured very much so that you learn about all the murders and then it's kind of a big surprise when you finally kind of they eventually flip one or two of the little time and then eventually get Ernest to flip that's all like a surprise late in the book and it would make a lot of sense for the film to follow that structure but if you want to center the Osage more you have to tell it this way and I do think they are it is a fair criticism of the book and a fair criticism of the movie that it is that they are secondary to these characters, but they are much more present in an important way, I think, in in the film than than they were in the book. Um, I so I'm very patient with that criticism. The criticism that gets folded into that is that um, how dare they sideline Lily Gladstone for so much of the the later part of the movie and that's just the events. I mean, I, I think, I think it's fair to say like you miss her when she's not on screen, but that's what happened. And part of telling this incredible story about this woman who survived it is how much she suffered at the hands of who loved her. And I mean, I think part of the problem, if I'm being honest, is that the performance is too good and you forget that she's not actually sick and dying and that she's just selling the hell out of it and doing such a great job in those scenes. Um, do I miss her kind of stayed calm presence? Absolutely. But I don't think it's fair to say that the movie maligns her or does a discredit to her uh, by by putting her um, 
to the side. Um, and, and then to co-sign the other point that was that you were both making is like Martin Scorsese knows how to tell this type of movie. And remember before when I was talking about those toxic uh, men that he was maybe targeting, the other name for those are Scorsese bros, right? Dudes who saw Goodfellas and was like, that is it. That is my life. Throw it on my dorm room wall. I'm going to do this forever, right? Am I a clown to you? You'd laughing at me, right? And we know this type of dude. And this is saying this kind of dude is a problem. And especially because the people who think they're Ray Liotta are really Ernest Burkhart, right? And Or Leonardo DiCaprio here, right? And that means that they're going to do this in a terrible way, a stupid way and a destructive way and a gross way and all those words. And so I think it's really important. And, and you know, uh, Irishman and this, uh, to me, do belong in the same conversation because it's Scorsese kind of reckoning with the legacy he was going mm. to have and saying, I glorified a lot of things. Now, I, I do think dudes who think they want to be good fellas, like turned it off too early or watch the table point, cut yeah. or something. Yeah. But, like, it's not like ca- Casino or Goodfellas have happy, upbeat endings. Um, actually, Wolf of Wall Street does have a happy, upbeat ending for the main scuzz bag in a kind of ironic twist. So maybe that belongs here too. But I think all of this is Scorsese saying like, you know, I don't want my legacy to be empowering this type of awful story. So I'm going to tell you something that feels so, so much like one of my movies and show you how absolutely awful these people are. Um, And so that's a great movie for Scorsese to tell. And to me, it actually comes down to the last um, shot of the film. I I have limited experience. I've I've gone to a few lectures since we renamed here in Massachusetts. We renamed Columbus Day Indigenous Peoples Day, and and we have at my university really tried to get native speakers to come and talk about the native experience in Massachusetts in particular. The number one thing they say is we hate that you talk about our people only in the past tense, right? We hate that you say we were tragically wiped out. We're here. We're alive. And I got really moved in the film that the last scene is this beautiful dance of the tribe gathered. And you've got this drum beat in this gorgeous, I assume, drone shot of uh, the drone lifting up. And you'd see that they are alive and thriving and happy and they're real people still today. And uh, as much as I think it's fair to criticize the film for not showing a happy kind of part of Osage history, I think it's really important that this film is like they're still here and they are still, you know, a, they are still themselves. They still have their culture. They didn't all just intermarry and raise their kids white and all of that. Like there's still a very strong Osage nation. So I thought right. that was really powerful. And so I'm going to say the film kind of in my estimation did enough to to honor that even while telling a, a story that glorified a bad part of their history you just reminded me that that's such a perfect contrast to the opening scene which is them burying the pipe and mourning the death of their culture right to show at the end yeah. that no actually part parts of it did carry on and there's you know there's a tradition that still has survived i think is really moving um to go back to lily gladstone because i can't talk about her enough i think for me the takeaway was that despite being bedridden for the last act of this movie she still saves the day basically like she still Mm. somehow manages to rally and be like give me my 300 dollars to take the train to washington dc 
right? She she makes her way. She finds the president. She sends the message. And at that in that moment, you're kind of like, oh, is anyone going to listen to her? I don't know. But then, but clearly, like the Jeffrey, the next scene after that, I'm pretty sure is Jesse Plemons knocking on Ernest Burkhardt's door, right? And there might be more in the, between them, but like the, to me, that's my memory of it. <laughs> it's like one happens the, in a co- in sort of a causal cause and effect. Like in the editing yeah. to me implied that like, okay, she did. And she says, this is maybe the last thing I'll ever do. So I have to do it. And she's just making a last ditch effort to save her people. And, and so to me, like, yes, we don't, she's not delivering an Oscar reel speech in the third act. Right. But to go back to the first act, there's a thing that King says to Ernest in that first scene where they're sitting, their first sit down that to me is giving us, telling us how to interpret her performance. And it's the thing he says where he's like, I can't remember what animal metaphor it's like crow talk or something like that, where he's, he's like, he makes that weird, like chittering noise (laughs) in a very delightfully Robert De Niro way. Um, But sort of explaining, look, like when you're talking to someone who's from the Osage tribe, like don't feel like you have to fill all the silences with just gabbing, like, and, and, and then, and obviously he's doing that for sinister reasons, trying to teach, Ernest how to sort of like bamboozle these people and like get in with them and make them trust him and all that sort of stuff but the way that conversation ends is he says like just because an Osage doesn't say anything like they're not speaking doesn't mean they're not telling you something or like that they're not like saying something right and to me that that is what is so powerful about Lily Godstone's performance is that she doesn't say very much and yet she communicates vast volumes of her, like in her role, you know what I mean? Like she's like she, her presence and her presence is so strong. And, and so when she does have a line of dialogue, you know, even when she's sort of like sweaty and incoherent <laughs> in the end of the movie, right. It still packs a huge punch. And, and you, and she really sells it that like, that she actually did love Ernest, right. To the point of maybe making lots of bad decisions, <laughs> Um, that she marries him despite kind of knowing who he is, right? Because there's mm-hmm. that moment in the early on where she's talking to the sisters and they're like, he's a snake. And she's like, no, he's a coyote and he's handsome. He's dumb, but he's handsome and I like him, right? And like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. I can't say enough good things just, about, about her performance. And just to underscore that, that was not a written scene. They, the, those actresses came up with it. Scorsese shared this oh. story that they had this kind of moment where the girls were just going to be there under the tent looking at the guys. And those three actresses kind of came up with how they'd say it. And the joke about like, he's a, he's a rabbit to me, wink, wink. Uh, and like, <laughs> that is just such a great little bit of characterization. And this, again, this wonderful kind of like, these are real people and they have real lives, whatever stereotypes you kind of accidentally apply to them. So further, furthering the case, um, you know, you're right. It's hard to see Lily Gladstone's scene being put next to Emily Blunt's Oscar scene on the reel. But I think this movie does not work without her. And again, we'll, we'll get there. But I think she belongs in the lead actress category, too. So Ooh. I, I agree with everything she, you I just mean, said. Greg, she will be. That's the, that's what they said. Yeah. They're going to campaign her in lead. Yeah. So. Uh, one, last, one last to add uh, extra praise for Lily Gladstone uh, to, to Jen's uh, – point about how much she does with silence is the big kind of climactic scene is when she's in that little side room with uh, uh with Ernest uh in the courtroom and is just like what was in the medicine 
and or what was in the in the shots i think and then he just kind of kind of like you know looks a little bit he goes just insulin and like as soon as he says that and she because she knows it's not true she just gets up and walks out and it's just like there's no she doesn't need to do anymore like there's no there's nothing further this is done this is over. it's also because he he says did did you like she questions whether or not he genuinely fell in love with her naturally or if king set them up and he denies it he still sticks with no like that's the one thing that was real Mm. Was me falling in love, right? But did, well, was, I thing? thought I thought Lithgow, the, that was on the stand. I thought I thought it was right, Lithgow right, their, their their conversation afterwards. She, I, th- I thought I could have sworn she. I mean, granted, I only saw this movie once. Me too. Like, <laughs> like, but I, I feel like she also asked him about that. That might be true. I guess I just thought that because he was already sort of flipping, like that he, like he was being sincere, and so he was like, "No, I did really." fall in love with you and you know, like separate from whether or not whatever King may have said. But he's also lying because we have seen the scene where he basically says like, it's like, okay, like, so you sort of like this girl. Great. Like, let's put our plan in motion. Mm. Right. right. I, so I guess I took it as he did, but he did fall in love with her, even though right. King was like trying to make that happen. He did fall in love with her. But again, and this goes back to your original thing of like, well, how dumb is he? Is that like he's uh, he was just like, no, no, I, I absolutely love her. Sure, I was poisoning her, but it was only because I love mm. her. But yeah, it's a good point that like he's so deep in the delusion and the lie that he's just like, no, like of course right. not. Like, and it that's, was the, all... that's the breaking point for her. I think is so important, right? That she's like, yeah. oh, he is lying to me about our relationship, and then. So mm. now I'm out. I can't. I, all yeah. the murder I probably could have withstood. <laughs> no, not really. Um, but yeah. So yeah, that's so that that was sort of my counterpoint to like a. She's not in the movie enough, and b. Because the other thing was like that we that she's too much of she's too helpless. Like she doesn't have an agency, and I feel like you know if you if you pay close close attention to her plotline, you know, yes, she's bedridden for a lot of it, but she does actually. I think that's my interpretation that she's the one that actually makes this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think that's right. Okay. We've ta- already talked a bunch about performances. I guess the only thing I add to that conversation is I'm not sure this is DiCaprio's best performance. That's the thing I've been hearing a lot. Mm-hmm. Career best. I don't know if this is career best. Uh, he's amazing uh, in it. And I think it's a really hard role to play, as we've discussed. But I don't know. What do you think? I, I mean, I, I think that it's hard to say it's better than The Wolf of Wall Street when he had more to do. Mm. He had a similar length movie, but it wasn't a three-pronged movie. It was sort of him with a few sort of people he was bouncing off of. So I've always sort of thought of that as his best performance. But it, it might be the most surprising performance he's done in a long time for all mm. the reasons that uh, Greg was mentioning earlier and sort of, you know, him being uh, against type uh, and, and, you know, just being, you know, to like, there's, there's always sort of the, the talk of who has the like power in a scene. And he, you know, despite being a, an arbiter of life and death at times, or a, uh, a harbinger of death, I, sh- I guess I should say, uh, he never really has power. And so for to be a mm-hmm. movie star and be so powerless as a character, uh, throughout, whether it's because of his emotions towards something, his his uh, avarice and, and greed for for money, at which he very openly says multiple times in the first like thirty minutes of the movie, I I, I do love money, uh, and uh, and then you know being being a puppet uh, of of the more powerful people, 
uh, that's I think that that is fascinating, and I think that that's something that you know speaks to uh, both his commitment to to performing. Uh, and also, you know, probably speaks to his relationship with Scorsese, where you know I don't know how many other directors he would have wanted to do that. And you know, and credit from the the stories that have been out there that you guys have both mentioned that it was he was going to be the hero cop who comes in and saves the day. And then in talking to the director, he was just like, I don't know, like about this story, and I don't really know about this role. That person looks way more interesting. Like that, if if we centered the story on that and that relationship like that would be a better role to do and that would be a lot more uh there'd be a lot more there and you know credit credit to him for that but yeah it, it's very strange and this was um sean fantasy on the big picture i didn't listen to the whole episode uh in time but i did hear the sort of first part and he says it where it's like this is a dynamite dicaprio performance and it's clearly in third place in this movie <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i like that they were so they were so uh-huh. positive on on this movie they were i think Bobby, their producer, called it a stone cold masterpiece. So <laughs> I don't know if he's I, uh, which is unusual. It's unusual yeah. for them. Usually they have some kind of criticism, but I feel like for this, they were yeah. just it was all good vibes. The other point they make that I, I liked is they said basically all of DiCaprio's career is just him proving he's not the guy from Titanic anymore. And like <laughs> I do feel like there's a little of that here. I mean, the 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 character is called handsome um at d- different times, but like he doesn't look good. He's he looks like a loser. And that's that's the point of him. And I like that DiCaprio is kind of pushing back on everything in that way. And well, and they also made the very good joke that, you know, they're in love because they made out in a car. And cinema has taught us that when Leonardo DiCaprio hooks up with somebody in a car, it's true. Unquestionable it's for real. love. Uh, like <laughs> essentially the same car, I think, because it's roughly the same era, uh, give or take. So uh, yeah, do we call uh, that so- an Easter egg like that. <laughs> that would be amazing if it was the same car like they called the agency and got it shipped over um you know i i absolutely agree he's in third place in this movie i think the character is very compelling and he executes it well but i don't think it's as hard as some of the other parts um so uh yeah i i i when jen when you said uh it's not the best DiCaprio performance to you. I kind of was going through my head. Like, I don't know what I think is, Um, you know, I, I have not seen, uh, maybe I'll get kicked off for this. I have not seen uh, the, the Revenant, 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 um, which he won. I mean, he's, he's fine in that, but that if we were, if we recall that Oscar narrative was about how, how he almost died making the film. Mm. And that, how, that's how some sense of a woman. How, how much? That's, not, <laughs> that's just what he got. That's not what it was. I don't know. I I even feel like his performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in the running. Yeah, I do love that for, one. Yeah, that's that's a I that would know. probably be what I would put tops. I mean, I kind of would. I'd really like to rewatch Django in light of this film and kind of think through. You know, well, that that's what I said before. That's the guy in the clan hood. We know that guy's racist. That guy's easy to mark racist, whereas these guys, it's it's a more complicated uh, kind of thing to, to deal with. Um, not that I think the Django performance is up there. I just think it'd be interesting in conversation with this. But um, I, I think I would like in my rewatches to really try to focus in on him. There's a little bit of the, oops, Wolf of Wall Street again, but Margot Robbie thing going on where 
if you make the performance look effortless, is it really not that hard True. a performance or are you just so good? So I'm I'm not landing on either side of that. I just know I undervalued Margot Robbie after my first Barbie viewing. And so and, and actually after my first Wolf of Wall Street viewing as well, because it was like, oh, she's just beautiful. And that's why they hired. But it's like, oh, no, she's like kind of incredible and and perfect for this. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, not to make this a Margot Robbie podcast, but I would like to rewatch Leo's uh, performance at the moment though. And I don't know if we're making the transition or that's a category way. I, I still think Killian's got it. I, I don't think this is going to unseat Killian from the lead of that race at the moment. Oh, well, we'll, we'll do a full Oppenheimer V Killers <laughs> of the Flower Moon when we get to the end. Don't worry. Uh, I have lots of thoughts and, and conflicting thoughts. Uh, okay, but I think we are ready to go to the rhetorical situation. I think we're we're already broaching things that I have in here <laughs> about mm. that. So the rhetorical situation is a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experiences. So in the teaching of writing, the rhetorical situation refers to any contextual factors that influence composing and interpretation. So in general, we can talk about any contextual factors that kind of have bearing on this film. I think we've already talked about several. But for me, the thing that popped up that we haven't really talked about in the rhetorical situation in any of our other reviews is the concept of ethos. Because I think Scorsese as a director, people call him, he has so many accolades, people call him the greatest living direct American director, right? I feel like ethos is such a big part of how we people are viewing this film. And first, first off, because I think ethos out of the, the, the three pieces of the rhetorical triangle, ethos, pathos, and logos, ethos is the one that I find always find the hardest to explain to students. I don't know if this is true for you as well. Cause it's like, well, it's sort of character, but it's also sort of like your authority and credibility as a, as a writer or a speaker. But I think it's just any sort of, bearing that the author and the persona and the, what we associate and know about the author kind of has on the way that we then interpret the text. And I feel like I want to start at the ending because we haven't talked about the ending, not not the final shot that Greg was talking about earlier, but the whole sequence where we, we suddenly pull out from the main narrative and we are in the middle of a radio broadcast that's essentially like an old timey true crime podcast version of the story uh and then martin scorsese actually shows up at the end which i'm gonna be honest this blew my mind when i saw it i was by myself in the theater and didn't want to make a scene but i was just my in my brain it was just like fireworks i was just like i cannot believe this is happening this is so smart i love how this is totally enriching enriching the film so i want your thoughts on like what why first of all why is marty placing himself in this movie and just in general, how does his presence both on screen and off screen sort of impact how we how we interpret the story? Well, it, it's funny because I believe it's his second cameo in the movie. Like yes. he was he was earlier at the Coolidge meeting, right? He but was it was the, just his oh, just his voice being like, we're going to do where you know, we're taking a photo. And it was like, oh, what what a, what a clever little director cameo. How nice. And then the end of the movie, it's just like, I'm here. I'm Marty. I'm on stage. <laughs> Yeah, I'm replacing Jack White and I'm giving the final speech. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, I mean, I thought it was great. My my sort of, I guess, main thoughts on it, uh, and this was before I, 
saw something and now and then I couldn't find it again before we went to recording. So I'm I'm uh, continuing the trend of uh, potential misinformation from the from earlier in the in the podcast. <laughs> that there you know there were shows like this. There were radio shows that were just like the hero stories of true crime that were like sponsored by the FBI. That like the you know the FBI sort of put out like this is the cop story you know in the same way that like the LAPD really like shaped the stories on Dragnet it was sort of you know what people today might call copaganda about you know what had happened and uh, so like that was interesting you know especially in the context of how much they pulled back from the that that the second part of the book subtitle of it the birth of the FBI that it's just almost like this way it was insidiously you know, spread into American society. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was interesting to me as a uh, bookend with the opening of the movie, which was a silent film newsreel about sort of, and here's what happened with the Osage people that, you know, makes sense for the 19 teens. And so this sort of idea that the we start the movie in a, in a time uh, at, at the beginning of the story, right after World War One, we have this kind of technology and this kind of storytelling, and then the movie wraps up when we sort of jump ahead through the 30s and 40s. Uh, I think up to 1950 is the last sort of moment that's mentioned. Uh, I could be wrong again, uh, but I think like sometime in the early 50s is the last date mentioned in that uh, concluding segment, and it's just sort of like, well, this is how media changed, and this is how media evolved, and how we sort of told these narratives to ourselves, and the kind of underlying idea of, well, isn't that progress? Like, you know, we went from, we don't have sound, we just have these sort of grainy pictures and now we have all these sound effects and we have this like uh, way of communicating over the airwaves um, that again, has this insidious nature of just sort of like, the, you know, it's the advancement of white people and the advancement of culture and the, the spreading of wealth is progress. And that's like, you know, we have to move forward. We can't just let the wrong kind of people have access to resources and money. Uh, so that's kind of what it felt like to me. And then giving the sort of last update on the story in the mouth of the filmmaker was, you know, again, to the degree that the um, story of the Osage people can be told through a 80 year old white man. It was like, I'm putting myself in the story, like up here to tell you like just directly, this is the end part of what, and this is what was important is that everybody got away with this and no one was ever punished. Like, that's what I want you to know. Uh, and that's what was the crucial thing. So that was my takeaway on it was sort of the, like a, a sort of sly commentary on progress. And then a more like hammer over your head of like, I'm the filmmaker and this is what I think that you need to know. Uh, I will ju just dive in and say yes to, to all of that. Um, it was absolutely real. Um, I think the name is correct. The lucky strike presents the, the so on. And, and this is that early move of J Edgar Hoover to mythologize the FBI and propagandize us. So David Grant in the book is very careful to note. Yes, we are definitely justifiably rethinking J. Edgar Hoover. But at this time, he is this important figure about drawing together the FBI. And and there is a version of this story that is very much about the FBI. And so, um, you know, I read everything in this. This is basically me agreeing with PT, but putting it in my own words, is that the ending is just telling us, again, think about the stories that get to be told, right? And we need to remember there's only one type of story that gets the slick uh, orchestra and the Foley artist and all this really cool whiz bang stuff. There's only one version of this story that gets told that way. And 
it works in a couple ways to me because it is a reminder that that was the only time this whole story was pulled together before the book. And then the book actually kind of started there and did a lot more work. Um, there's a, a third segment of the book, which is a bunch of new uh, kind of crime solving that David Grant did. Basically, he started researching and he found all these additional deaths that needed to be put into this category uh and so on. And so I really like that all that got left out. And instead we get um, the mythologizing of this event and how it is just, isn't the FBI great, isn't white, fantastic. And and look, he is, he's a fantastic agent. He's a hero in this story, but that's the kind of story we get to know. And we don't get to know this. And then to, to PT's point again, when you then shift that to Scorsese, I, I can't remember the other one. I thought I heard him twice in the film. And then I, I was like, I think that's oh. Marty. Like, and and he's Marty to me because we're old friends. Uh, I was like, I think that's him. And then um, I def it, it was in the the Coolidge scene is is correct, but there was one earlier I can't remember. And then okay. um, when it was him, I I was like, wow. And it made me really think about why he would make that choice, right? And I do think there's something something there to we get to we're the ones who get to tell the story. Like he's. He is in this movie reflecting on the fact that he can tell this story, but he shouldn't be the one to tell it. Right. It's it's kind of like how well, I guess we're going to see this in December. But Spielberg has said a lot like I am proud of the color purple, but I am not who should have made the color purple. Right. And I, I think Marty has that relationship with some of, of his material. So I took the ending um, and now I'm going to praise Hamilton after coming down so hard on <laughs> Hamilton a few episodes ago. But um, Hamilton has this incredible turn at the very end where uh, Eliza sings the last song and is singing the, the lyrics of who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And then the very last moment of the show is her kind of seeing the audience and like, oh, like, oh, my God, like that wasn't the end. Like there is more to tell. And that is pretty much the exact spirit in which I ended this. Right. So so Marty reads the language from the obituary of of Anna and says, you know, died in a trailer park. She was full blooded Osage. And then says the murders were not mentioned or, or the narrator does. Somebody says that. And I do think that that is their way of saying like, look, this is where history says this story ends. And that's why I love the then the last shot, because Marty is almost like wicked at you is like, that's not where it ends, friends. Right. They're still alive. They're still here. And that matters so much to them. Right. Full blooded Osage. Here are some full blooded Osage still alive, still a part of this nation. And I, I think, you know, making it the director doesn't feel necessary to me, but it feels like his way of kind of making sure he is demonstrating his self-awareness about this problem that the film could have. And for me personally, as one viewer, that kind of excuses the whole thing and makes it like, yep, we're, we're who gets to tell the stories, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah. It, with my students, you know, I try to make time to talk to them about, unconscious bias and subjectivity that you have as a writer and sort of like how what what are ways to kind of deal with that in a piece of writing where it's relevant like where it's relevant and it's usually relevant there's usually some aspect of what you're talking about that you because of your experience and your identity like have a blind spot of some kind and and so what i often tell them is that sometimes all you can do is just acknowledge the difference acknowledge acknowledge where you're coming from and how what kind of 
blind spot or limitation that might place on how you are engaging with a particular conversation. And I feel like that to me is what Scorsese is doing here when he shows up. He's a kind of he's actually kind of preemptively participating in the critical discourse that we were talking about earlier, where he's like, look, I know I know that I am not of the Osage tribe. I know that like I am, you know, closer to king than i am to molly right like like he's sort of and Mm. and i think by pairing by by specifically showing up at least in his like full visual persona like him showing up to the and stepping up to the microphone in that last scene where we are sort of like pulling back the curtain and showing that the it's sort of what what uh greg what you were talking about when we were talking about on our last wes anderson episode of like the the medium is part of the message, right? And that that like he's like, oh, like how you tell the story and who is telling the story and what manner absolutely matters, and that we need to be aware of that as much as the story itself. And I feel like him, he's sort of placing himself in that lineage, right? Of like, and now I, as this American white American director, am now trying to tell the story also. And so, just so you know, I am conscientious of what that might like what what limitations that might place on the type of story i can tell and so um yeah to me i thought it was really really clever it wasn't self-indulgent at all i'm curious i haven't heard anything any criticisms of it in that sense most people seem very happy with it but i can imagine someone thinking oh like martin scorsese thinks he's so great he's putting himself in the end of his movie but it's not i don't think of it that way at all there's an interview, and this is going back to kind of like the uh, the historical, who gets to tell the story, like who's included in the story and who's telling the story and the types of stories that get told. But there's an interview that I watched earlier today with Lily Godstone and Leonardo DiCaprio. It was filmed, I think, before the strike. And she's telling about some of the research that she and Leonardo DiCaprio did. And she specifically says that the moment that broke her was they were looking at court documents of um, the bombing of of uh, Rita and Bill Smith's house, right? Which is a huge part of the movie. And there, she she describes it. The her description is so amazing, where she's like bringing us back to that moment. She's like, there are these really like old, fragile pieces of paper that we are gently flipping over and passing to each other. And she said, like she had she had them first, and then would pass as she read a page, would pass it to Leo and that that's that's her words not mine i don't <laughs> i'm i'm happy calling marty marty but like lee i don't know i draw the line of Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> yes but she says that she started crying when she realized that rita is never mentioned in these court documents only bill mm. it's like, as mm. if only bill had been murdered and and she was like and that to me was why this movie is so important because it's trying to restore some of the history that has been erased uh and i feel like that's again in terms of the the frame narrative of the black and white documentaries at the beginning, and then the sort of like radio play at the end, uh, and then and then Scorsese inserting himself, being like, "Yeah, this is another subjective telling of the story. I'm not I'm not immune to the problems of that of that process." I feel like that's the big thing that this film is trying to do is sort of being like, "Look, like every time you tell a story, there's some things you include and some things you don't include, and that matters." And I've got my other type five that I think ties into the ethos question, because I think 
I, I agree with you, Jen. I agree with everything you were just saying, but particularly when you were talking about teaching, that ethos is the hardest of the rhetorical triangle to to get across. And in addition to sort of seeing like, well, where are your blind spots? It's also, it's like, you know, you're trying to establish to your audience, why are you someone worth listening to? And so it, you know, partially is like, are you spelling all your words correctly and, and, you know, citing things properly. Like, you know, there's ways you can fudge around with some of those things, but like, you want to look like you're someone that is engaged with this. You want to make sure you've looked at other sides, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, you know, when we're having this conversation of just sort of like, well, you know, why, why is this the version of the story that's being told? You know, uh, what Craig said earlier is very true. The people that are just sort of like, what about like our story? We don't get talked to, or we don't, we don't get, you know, we don't get to share it. We don't get listened to. We don't pay attention to us, uh, is very valid and should not be wiped out. And I think even, uh, maybe, maybe I would think Scorsese would be like, yes, I would have loved it to not make this movie if, even though I, he was impassioned about it for a half dozen years, uh, if someone had been able to come in and be like, I'll do it and I'll tell the Osage. Uh, version. Mm. But I do think there's, there's, you know, the sort of trajectory, the sort of the, the threads that run through Scorsese's career actually do tie in really well. And this isn't like a, uh, you know, some sort of divergence. This isn't sort of him suddenly parachuting in to some other story and being like, let me tell you, like, you're, you Indians, I'll tell you, I'll tell your story. Um, but I think it really ties into a lot of, of what he's done. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to tangent into uh, Greg's political corner that he's uh, <laughs> set up to just share that uh, uh, a known crank, Armand White, uh, I don't know the degree to which you know the critic Armand White uh, used to be, I think, with New York Magazine back in the day. Uh, he just hates everything that everyone else likes. Like, that's kind of his bit. Uh, and so he's on that. But he's he's over time sort of uh, done a, found a nice little home at the National Review, one of the sort of austere, uh, reactionary, conservative uh, magazines, the William F. Buckley publication. Uh, and the, the, the tweet that the National Review account put out um, includes a pres- what I guess is a quote from the review that this is Scorsese's first political movie because he's been <laughs> radicalized against America and is, you know, infected with the woke mind virus of hating white men. And it's just sort of like, you think this is like, you, you, you've you sat down and enjoyed Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, Goodfellas, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, and just been like a Gangs of New York and just would have been like, ah, just some great non-political entertainment from <laughs> my man, Martin Scorsese. Um, but so, so you know, th- there's that weird, like crazy misinterpretation of it. But I think, you know, to to get maybe a little bit back on track is the sort of Catholic underpinnings of Scorsese and the way that his religious upbringing and the sort of veering back and forth, he always sort of says that he's, you know, he considers himself a lapsed Catholic, which I understand. Uh, but like, as especially as he gets older, he's like, look, I have to just reconcile, you know, I've looked into Buddhism, I've looked into some other things, like, I, this is ingrained in me, like all this sort of tenets of uh, Catholicism are are a part of me. And I think that, you know, there's, this is something that is, is very present in a lot of his movies. And when people kind of 
do the easy, you know, it, I hate to sort of paint with a broad brush. This has happened a lot with Marvel fans who are mad that he doesn't like Marvel movies. And they're like, well, he just makes, you know, mob movies that glorify violence. And it's like, none of those movies, I mean, there's, there's like, there is sort of the visceral fun of all of it, but there's always the cost and there's always the sort of come down and the way that it's pulled apart. And so I feel like a key part of this movie is like the concept of penance, and like, in a way, it feels like him making this movie is going through the sacrament of penance, of being like, these these things have happened. We have committed these sins. This story needs to be told. And I, as a, you know, as a, a prominent white man in America, will be part of the one to tell this up through and including, I will conclude Molly's story. Like, I'll be the one to say that, like, when she died, it was all forgotten. Like, that's not on the the indigenous performer that's on me like this is mm. something that like i'm a part of um and tying into that is sort of this concept of original sin that we are all conceived in a fallen state without uh the sanctifying grace uh because of we've inherited the sins of adam and eve our first parents and by extension our forefathers and i think that like that's so prominent in the things that he talks about i mean just thinking about, again, like, you know, all those mob movies, Gangs of New York uh, is maybe, you know, a, a very sort of clear because that is based in history. But, you know, he has all these gangster stories from like when he was growing up and he had these people around him. And, you know, this was, uh, you know, he got sort of this firsthand knowledge of the mafia because it was our thing, the, the Cosa Nostra, that had come with the Italian immigrants you know, brought with them to America. It was the forefathers who came here, brought this and kind of like passed it around. And he sort of has been wrestling up for many of the movies throughout his career with the sort of weight of the depravity brought on by the the sins that have happened before. And, and you know, what, like, what how we wrestle with it and how we try to deny it or how we try to use it. And, you know, it's it's just so ingrained in this story, both in sort of a conceptual, spiritual way, but also in a material, you know, the 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 the, the fruits of white supremacy way that lead to him being one of the few people in the country that can get two hundred million dollars for a major company to make a movie, while all the people in the Osage tribe are, you know, hoping that maybe they'll get you know, a grant somewhere to make a short film about one of their actual stories. So I don't know. I think that like, that's part of the ethos that sort of seems in there uh, that uh, is maybe not like immediately prominent, but that there's something to like, he's almost sort of going through a, uh, an attempt to try to make it right as best as he can in his old age and tell a story like this. That's like, we all need to be better. And this is a way to try to show that people need to be better. Well said. I like that a lot. I, I don't have a type five that is that brilliant or that smart um, and, and agreed that that was very well said. I just want to note in all of what we said and as a part of ethos, um, a commitment to the historicity keeps coming up and being repeated. And I think that's really worth noting that one of his values is he wants to tell this story as accurately as possible. Um, some of the transcript of the court case was actually used. The bit where the guy is like talking to his lawyer about how like, if I were to take these two 
Indian children to Mexico and they died, I would get that money. And the lawyer's like, you're telling me that you're taking them and going to kill these children. That's all verbatim. That is in transcripts oh, of those amazing. meetings. Only, that is only if I'll get the money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like unbelievable. This one's a little bit fun, but Jen, you invoked the newsreel at the beginning a couple times. The majority of the newsreel is Martin Scorsese has a camera from that era that they just loaded up with film and shot. But the airplanes uh, are real. So that is real archival fo- footage, that one piece. they were There were these really rich Osage who bought airplanes and were like kind of gentlemen pilots and played with them. And um, they tried to track down the families to try to get permission. They couldn't do it. And since it was public, they just decided they could still use it. Um, but like that also, you know, adds to the fact that we are framing it in this kind of historicity to authorize the telling of the story while at the same time calling into question how that those things are impartial or biased and so on. So it, it all folds into that. You could say all our history is in a fallen state and this is just our penance to create good art to fill it in. I'm not a fallen Catholic. I just play one on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I mean, or, or Greg, you, you can say that you've been radicalized against America. Uh, oh, that's true. And it's uh, woke because disease. of the woke idea. Because of the woke yeah. idea that America's white men are spiritually sick. Um, uh, that's right. That's our, spin-off politi- our spin-off political podcast, Woke Mind Disease, coming uh, <laughs> next week. <laughs> I, I'm not going to follow that up because both of what you, everything you both of you just said was brilliant. And so I will move us into Oscars Watch because we. I think the fact that we've dipped into Oscars Watch throughout the episode indicates that we ha- we not only have a lot to talk about but this has a lot of oscars prospects <laughs> the thing i've heard about oscars so far is that people are really invoking the irishman in the sense that it's gonna get a lot of nominations but maybe not mm. a lot of wins and what was particularly interesting is the big picture they were so high on this movie. They had very few criticisms of it. At the end of the day, they were like, but this is not going to really win many Oscars. So what do we think about that? Like, do we do we agree with that? Do you feel like we're going to repeat the Irishman all over again? Or is this a different situation? Um, can I just start by just a little like, oh, my God, we're finally in award season movies. I'm so excited. Like, uh, you know, I, I think we all expressed a lot of excitement in for summer movie season we love all movies seasons but uh, this one just felt to me there have been a couple no disrespect to past lives in june no disrespect to you all got to see anatomy of the fall i only disrespect their limited theatrical run uh but uh i will say it just feels like this is the turning point and now we're in it and it's a little late and it's going to be a weird season for the because of the strikes but yeah we're in it and and so excited um i would be really, really disappointed if um, this went the Irishman path. Um, I do think we take old filmmakers for granted. And when they create something um, subpar, we give them their Oscar. They should have won for something great. And then there's just like the long plateau after. So so Marty got his on The Departed, as I recall, right? And it was like, yeah, this isn't the best one, but this is the best one lately. And so we'll give you your, your uh, credits there. And then it does feel like we just ushered them into this long plateau of lots of nominations and nothing. Um, I, I, 
I think I fell exactly into the trap with the Irishman that PT described. I watched it at home. The pacing of that movie meant I picked up my phone a lot and it was like, it's still going on and all the wonky technology stuff um, didn't. So I totally dismissed that. If that happens to this movie, I'm going to be really upset. Um, I think this deserves big nominations and um, I think, I think it should get some of the wins as well. And I will be really disappointed. Um, You know, I, well, we'll get into categories specifically, but it seems like now this is a leader for best adapted, although Oppenheimer is also best adapted, right? Or is it? It is. I feel it, like we really could have, an, as promised, Oppenheimer versus this movie showdown. I, With poor things yeah. creeping as well, because that's, that's also true. adapted. We uh, just haven't seen it yet. So. Which we haven't seen, <laughs> but that's, have so, seen that's the other things. player. Because Barbie win original. They decided Barbie was not adapted. Yes. Right. Okay. So the cat, I mean, the, realistically, the category is looking like, and I wish, I really wish I had my predi- predictions spreadsheet open now. I'm embarrassed I don't. Jen, I, I, I have know. mine open, so oh, I'll, I will, I'll, I'll just you. jump in to, uh, but it's, it's, yeah, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, which, again, we sort of had as a triangle in a lot of things. Then there were like, three or four movies that all we kind of thought were vying for the last spot zone of interest. Uh, all of us strangers, color purple, uh, Priscilla, American fiction where, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat dependent on what hits and what kind of gets some momentum and, you know, screenplay sometimes bubbles up is like an, un, what might be not expected now will suddenly become the front runner in January, February. But, uh, I don't know. This feels this feels like if nothing else, especially because it's a rare instance where Scorsese was is credited as the screenwriter. It's like we can give him another Oscar, but we don't have to give him director or picture. <laughs> like you know, like what what if we want to give someone else one of those movies, but he still gets you know a solid Oscar. So yeah, to me, um, I'm I'm yeah I'm fully with Craig, uh, and as someone who loved The Irishman, and I will talk. Uh, positively about my Irishman experience uh, at, at any point uh, if people want to, but uh, you know, that was sort of, okay. Like I, I could see why suddenly it got lapped by everybody. Um, but I hope that doesn't happen again. I especially hope that what happened with the Irishman doesn't happen here, which is Robert De Niro gets slept on and he doesn't get nominated. Cause I think De Niro could have gotten nominated for, uh, for lead actor in the Irishman and he didn't. Uh, and I don't think that's likely cause he seems like he's one of the three like strong sort of locks for supporting actor. Uh, and, you know, at this point, again, personally, my, my favorite, I don't know if he will actually, you know, win. I'm not making the prediction yet, but, you know, it feels right now to start talking about categories uh, that like, I would think it's gotta be the front runner in screen adapted screenplay and still lead actress, uh, even with the sort of, I don't know, like, is this a lead? Does she disappear for too long? Her presence is too strong. And as, as Greg was saying, like you feel like she's gone, but it's not, it's because she, the character, the character is fading away, but she's present in the movie and her absence is part of the story. So, uh, and then as Jen said, when she like starts to even like do a little bit, it's monumentally important to the story. Like it feels absolutely relevant that she's in lead. And uh, you know, I, I think as good as Emma Stone is supposed to be in poor things, it feels like Emma's got hers. The, you know, the 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 narrative if the big blowback to this movie is like uh this is not their story to tell 
well, she's the one who they can point to to be like, well, okay, but right. not her. Which I think is entirely the campaign strategy behind placing her in lead, even though based on the competition may be more of an uphill battle because we've got Emma Stone, we've got Carrie Mulligan potentially. We've, you know, there's, I feel like that lead compared to supporting right now, at least, is a little bit more stacked and, and would have a lot of heavy hitters in it. So I think it all really comes down to narrative. So I think at first I remember hearing when I heard this news of that she was going to be in supporting versus lead, I was like, oh, no, her chances to win just went down a lot uh, because I, I thought she would have been a slam dunk in supporting. And so to me, I was kind of scratching my head for a little while. But I do think for the overall success of the film, Oscars wise, ha you have to have that narrative. And I think placing her in lead is a big cornerstone of that narrative of and for screenplay, I think. It would be in the lead in front of Oppenheimer because of the narrative of how they changed it. Like if, if that story that we told about, well, they originally were going to be a closer adaptation to the book and be more of a traditional crime crime thriller with the FBI at the center. And then they had this revelation and switched it so that it was so it could focus more on Lily Gladstone's character of Molly. I feel like if that story gets out, that paired with putting Lily Gladstone in lead, I think could do it you know what i mean it could it could mm. make a big push and but if they don't if that narrative doesn't get out and circulates and then people people don't know sort of the thoughtfulness that went behind the process of making this maybe maybe it doesn't do as well uh, and i i made a joke reference earlier to uh emily blunt in the same category emily blunt has to go into supporting actress for mm -hmm. all the reasons that we were just saying lily gladstone belongs in lead actress um PT, back to your comments. You would take De Niro over uh, Downey Jr. You're not going to give Iron Man his his Oscar. Yes, that's correct. I love Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> in Oppenheimer, uh, and 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 I I hope this is the beginning of you know a late career resurgence where he ends up with you know a nomination a few years down the road and everyone's like, how did he not win for Oppenheimer? We got to give it to him now uh, in a, what is hopefully a good performance, but. I don't know. I've been comfortable for a while with the idea of like, why don't we have, why doesn't De Niro have a third Oscar? Like, why isn't he in that Daniel Day-Lewis, Jack Nicholson, Meryl Streep, like level of triple acting winner? And, you know, there's been a little bit of squinting of just like, what if he won for Silver Linings Playbook? Like maybe, uh, which I don't forget. I forget who actually won, but I, I believe it was the better win. But I, uh, I was always like, you know, could be good. Could be good if he won. Uh, and, you know, I think this, you know, people are correctly saying this is his, uh, you know, most standout performance since, you know, you start going, reaching back and you're like, I don't know, when was the last time? Was it Goodfellas? I mean, he's done a lot of other fun stuff in the, in the nineties, but uh, you know, this, the, you, you didn't know, or I, I feel like I didn't know he still had this level of performance in him. And so as a sort of career capper, I think that, you know, that's kind of going to be the argument for everyone, not Lily Gladstone, who's a, a big name here is, are you going to give them like an extra career capper award or are you going to give it to someone who hasn't gotten it? Uh, and you know, that's, if this gets, you know, if this really starts to get in the running for, director and picture lead actor supporting actor it's yeah they already got one but like shouldn't they have another or they've got two shouldn't they have three uh so yeah right now i would i would do that because i think that it's uh you know they, they both have that sort of they kind of seem like they're not bad people and then by the end you're like oh my god but like the the sort of 
magic trick level of what Janeiro was doing was a little bit higher. So uh, all nothing but love. I would love it if Robert Downey Jr. won, I, but I would put Janeiro ahead of him. I see in, what you're saying, time. but if you're an Academy voter, I feel like the fact that it's like a a surprise reveal of his evil nature at the end for Robert Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer, right? There's a more of a, a, a climactic moment where he can really throw down in his performance. Whereas I agree that what De Niro's doing is more sophisticated and more sustained, but it is sort of diffuse if you think about it compared sure. to, you know what I mean? So I can definitely see people gravitating towards the Robert Downey Jr. I agree. And th- this, this is, this is one of our uh, somewhat divides where you're always on the prognosticating uh, track on things. And uh, yeah, so I, and what I meant was I want Robert De Niro to win. I, know, I don't I'm, know if he mm-hmm. will win because I think it's just as likely that this movie only gets two or three wins uh, with like six or seven nominations. Uh, and you know, the most likely wins, I think, at this point, many months out screenplay and actress and i'm just going to throw in and say before score because i think the score is incredible the transitions that happen sort of in the type type of music and it's a posthumous career award for robbie robertson uh who's done uh, a lot of work with scorsese over the years so um you know i think that those i would be um very content with those winning and I, i'm comfortable saying like lightly predicting those i don't think anyone else wins from this movie I would want De Niro to win and I would potentially choose, you know, director and picture right now uh, based on what I've seen. Uh, even though you, I did, I did love, love Oppenheimer. You love Killers of the Flower Moon more than Oppenheimer is what I'm hearing. I think so. But what, I, need what, to, I need to watch both of them again. What about you, Greg? Uh, I mean, you just stole my thunder. I was going to make you all say Leo nomination, but can't beat Killian Murphy. Because I think that's where I am. I think I think, I think he gets right. nominated. I think Killian Murphy's is just a better, bigger, more memorable part when it comes down to it. But to say which one of these two I preferred, um, I only I I'm the lone man out on the podcast who only saw Oppenheimer once, and it was so long ago it has faded in my mind. But I can see myself craving a rewatch of that one more than a rewatch of this one. I do also think I coming in as having read the book, I think some of the experience of how cool this story is was lost on me. Like, I do think the film is much more towards people new to the story than than people who'd read the book, which is a call you have to make and totally a fair call. It doesn't I'm not judging that call. So I think I probably am a little more Oppenheimer positive, but that is just taste, not necessarily I think it was better made. Um, I just think I was drawn to that material a little bit more um, than this. Right? I mean, personal murder, lame. Species murder, awesome. Planet (laughs) annihilation, totally awesome. Uh, I'm way more into that than I am individual (laughs) murders. Come on, people. Uh, No, I I, I mean, PT's right. I I hope I can revisit both. I did see we were trying to play a game on text message. Where's Oppenheimer uh, coming out on home release? And it finally got announced for the end of November that it'll have a a home release. I think late November, early December. But it was announced because to tell the listeners we were debating on text message maybe that they were holding it off from home release to try to get another 
um, theatrical run on the premium screens once Aquaman inevitably fails. God, Um. that trailer was attached to this movie for me for some reason. I don't know what they were thinking. It was like, nobody wants to see this period, let alone sit through this garbage CG as we prepare for like a upsetting historical epic. So um, I, I don't know. Marvel's was on it too. I don't get it. I don't get what they're doing. Um, I mean, but I think anyway. it might just be that there aren't enough movies coming out soon. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably right. And these are the only ones the studios want to pay to put on other studios films and so on. So yeah, right. crazy. Um, so in terms of this question of Oppenheimer versus Killers of the Flower Moon, I feel like my head says Killers of the Flower Moon. My heart says Oppenheimer. Ooh. And I and I feel kind of head bad. in terms of predictions and heart. No, in no, terms no, no. Of- I just mean head in terms of like the intellectually the movie that I should like better. You know what I mean? Okay. Like my head mm-hmm. is telling me Killers of the Flower Moon is the better movie, but then my heart is like, but I love Oppenheimer so much, and. Mm. And maybe and maybe it's a matter of just the like the subject matter is yeah like sort of Greg was saying is pers- personal taste I don't know um, maybe I'm just like a basic Academy voter who's going to be a sucker for like the biopic and this is not um, Killers of Flower Moon is not a biopic maybe that's it I don't know but I feel like it, it is I am really torn because I think a lot of the things that I really like about both movies overlap in the sense that like they both are trying to examine periods of American history in a very, and like embrace the complexity of looking at, of that history. And, and then also have this sense of dread and kind of shame about that history in the sense of like, and it's still carrying on to today. Like it's, it's like a light touch in terms of connecting it to, to our contemporary moment, but not hitting you over the head with it. And so I can see a lot of parallels between them, but they could, in terms of tone and style, I feel like they could not be more different. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There are um, also two movies where people, the big, the big complaint is you don't spend enough time with the victims. Like we're not telling that right. story. I was going to bring that up earlier and we didn't have time, but yes, like the facing the same criticisms. And so it's super interesting, but the to go back to our recommendation algorithm conversation, like academy voter are the history history channel dads gonna choose oppenheimer over ten thousand probably and how many history channel dads are in still in the academy i think is what this might come down to um mm. and not not i you know all the love to the history channel dads uh, we, <laughs> we, we i think we all have them uh <laughs> I, I yeah I'll, I'll just say i mean what a what what a blessing to have this as a debate uh, because these are two movies that I think we both rate very highly um, and to have these sort of vying up in the top, you know, uh, stratosphere of our, of our list for the year. And hopefully uh, in the award conversation uh, is wonderful. The people who don't like the Academy Awards uh, for uh, there's lots of valid reasons. One of them is the sort of George C. Scott, why are we, pitting things against each other when like these are just both two good movies like why are we trying to like fight uh over who what's better or try to like make a decision one way or another um so yeah it's very happy that we have this and i'm glad that we can spend the next few months talking about it before poor things in american fiction uh take all the awards from both of them Mm. that's true Uh, yeah we're only having this kind of conversation because we haven't seen poor things yes yeah I just want to add, enjoy it now, folks, because next year's looking bleak, uh, right? Disney already vacated the Deadpool 
spot at the beginning of of may and it's gonna be a dark time for movies so um re-releases let's enjoy all re-releases hit the archives (laughs) every movie theater is a rep theater for for five Um, months next year quickly before we wrap up do we want to give a shout out to the other categories that we think this will be nominated in because we we've mentioned actress screenplay director but we're beyond that and score. You mentioned score. Score. Yep. I mean, I, I, would I think say PT's cinema- list nailed it. So yeah, that's yeah. Those good. are the ones that. I mean, I think it could wait. It could get nominated. Cinematography, costume, production yeah, I design. Think all those craft categories. All, yeah. all of those craft categories. It, it's certainly like viable. Unless suddenly it gets a lot of momentum, I don't think it wins any of those. Oh, interesting. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, well, well, I guess what I'm, what I'm, you know, to, again, this is. Fun. Not as far out as our far out prognostication. Uh, way too early. This is still pretty too early. Uh, I kind of think that, uh, you know, people who haven't won before are going to, you know, the people who work with Marty, I think, have all gotten something um, for mm. for the, his movies uh, along the years because he works with the same people over and over. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that like Oppenheimer, some of these other movies we haven't seen yet, um, will we'll pick up a lot of those below the line categories. I think that, um, you know, the they'll they'll feel reasonably comfortable with like you're getting a few big ones and and you know we'll give you score for below the line that's good uh but you know again the momentum might pick up and it could go it could go different i think if they can campaign about behind the scenes stuff about consulting with the osage about especially particularly for something like costumes i feel like Mm -hmm. that could that wouldn't be the make or break factor and there were there there were articles about how many blankets and what each blanket means and so i think Mm -hmm. there is more to that story that can be told um and just it it, the other you you mentioned the other ones coming napoleon too and if napoleon's really great a lot of these technical categories would i bet on ridley scott after recent years where he creates something amazing that gets largely ignored um no but um, you know, if it's really good and people really love it and watch that four hour director's cut that that is going to be on Apple TV, I think there's a chance that, um, you know, some of those get wiped out just because, um, you know, revolutionary France feels much harder than American West in the early 20th century. That may not be true, but it feels harder and the artistry kind of disappears in craft categories when it's familiar. And once again, N- Napoleon's built different. So you know that that does mean that does mean something else. Yeah, I mean, and Napoleon seems to be the only other uh, possible push for Apple original films. So I'm, I'm I'm kind of assuming the other way, where Napoleon comes out, everyone sees the theatrical version and is like, oh, okay, Joaquin Phoenix, what a weirdo. And you know maybe it gets some of those below the line, but I think that Apple will have everything into this. And I mean, Apple has one best picture un- unlike a Netflix. So, uh, you know, it, they're, they're, it's possible. It's possible Apple will be able to turn out some of those stories, some of those behind the scenes things, even if the strike is still going on and they can't talk to the actors. They've got Marty. They've got the other screenwriter. They've got Thelma uh, Schoonmaker. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but, you know, her, she has her narrative about editing the movie. Um, they might have archival footage with Robbie Robertson. There's lots of people, uh, plus the Osage uh, people, they're, you know, members of the community they were communicating with. There's a lot of things they can get out there um, to keep the narrative going, keep people paying attention. So, yeah, I think it's it's in line for a healthy campaign. 
but maybe we'll I'm just see. excited because we just saw it. And also, don't forget Martin Scorsese killing it on TikTok. You are not mm. follow- following Francesca Scorsese, his daughter. You were missing out. Very glad she turned off the voice filter. That that oh, was oh yes, that was hard. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this has been a hearty and insightful conversation. Thank you both. Greg, where can folks find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at ioncanon.com. That's E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N, uh, which links up with some of my podcasting projects. Kind of quiet at the moment, but uh, my show, Through the Glass Columns, uh, which is reading the Wheel of Time books, continues and is evergreen. So if you want a winter reading project and want to read uh, the Wheel of Time book series, let us be your book club uh, Through the Glass Columns. Nice. And yeah, the thing I was thinking of is that as professors, fall movie season actually is like the worst time <laughs> in terms of <laughs> our day jobs, like what, what, because that's really when it ramp starts to ramp up. So I'm like, oh, if we ever get to go to a film festival someday, like it's going to be really hard for work. <laughs> mm. But that's a problem for another day. We have to, to go be- to, to, to Khan. It's in, uh, it's in May. It's in May. The yeah. semester is over. I can learn how to pronounce it because I don't think that was the correct way of pronouncing. I, think it's can I mean, if you're an American, you it's accepted that you say can. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But I but I don't know if that's quote unquote like if you're actually a I'm French speaker, how you say it. I'm voting TIFF because I can drive to TIFF. It's it's a, it's a long one, but I can drive there. Drive and, and, <laughs> but Toronto's a yes. good city. Or we that. just would need to target one that's a weekend, like one that's not like yeah. 15 days right. and would require us to take time off. Well, and, anyway. and to the other academics out there, I just want to pitch the Thursday night award movie screenings are awesome because it's not like a Marvel opening night where everybody, all the diehard weirdos, myself included, are there. It's like, hey, we're just the like weird five guys who are free on a Thursday night and want to come see uh, American fiction by ourselves and not make eye contact with each other. Totally a great movie experience. So <laughs> go for it. Uh, other people. <laughs> Great. And PT, remind folks where they can find the Long Take Review. They can follow us on Instagram and threads at the Long Take Review. They can also uh, contact us via email. Uh, send that to the Long Take Review at gmail.com. And you can find me at Subchakchai, S O P C H O C K C H A I, on Instagram and threads, and Qui Gon Jen on Letterboxd. Thank you. We did it. Hi, everyone. Bye bye. listening you can follow the long take on substack at thelongtake.substack.com subscribe for free to receive reviews of films with oscar buzz as well as new films and series from pop franchises like star wars and marvel (laughs) greg's never heard this before i was gonna say have i heard this one this seems new i don't think you have it's new i i really wish Ooh, Everyone could have seen the I like the second face. movement. We were we were headed to the red carpet and now we stopped to swing on a lamppost on the way in. <laughs> the, the paparazzi so, demanded I'm, it, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> need photos. We, we do, do you have to edit this down? I didn't have time to do that. Um, okay. <laughs> and Sorry, there's no way on doing visual bits. I know. So. You know, you get. <laughs> um, I, there's no way for me this to. This runs pause through it. the whole segment. It just never stops. It's a bad. It just never. We can, we can start talking. I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah. So I don't really know how long this is, but maybe I will just um, do the same thing where we are. We are winding down. I mean, I think it's now it's like we're they're playing us <laughs> off. It's like, okay, this podcast mm-hmm. has gone on too long.